Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. That doesn't sound good. Paper shredders jammed, but I think I fixed it. Oh, well, try shredding these $50 bills then. Seems like it's working. Mm, better try another 400 bucks. Stop. Instead of using money, use regular paper. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 121 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Edsel Dope from Dope, I wanted to remind you about all of the stuff that you can find at MistressCarrie.com. You can obviously find all the episodes of the Mistress Carrie podcast and the Mistress Carrie sit rep. You can also find all 202 episodes of Cocktails in the War Room. You can check out my blog, my photo gallery. You can shop in the official online Mistress Carrie store. You can keep up to date with all of the concerts coming to New England in the events calendar. And if you want to send me a message, just click the message the studio button. The links to all my social media pages are there and the link to get a Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. There's details on the Mistress Carrie radio show and info on my upcoming appearances because you never know where I'm going to pop up next. All of life's problems can be solved on MistressCarrie.com. I am so excited about this week's guest. Edsel Dope is one of my oldest friends in music. He and I met each other in the early stages of both of our respective careers. And Edsel and I sat down for an incredibly long catch-up conversation. We talked about everything. The band just released their new video for the song No Respect. It's off of their upcoming new album, Blood Money Part Zero, that's due for release on February 24th of 2023. Edsel and I talked about his music, his songwriting, how different the music business is now from when we both started in the 90s. We talked about social media and internet bullying, our families and his experience being a girl dad. We talked about his own upbringing in Florida and how he brought himself to New York to make it big in music. And we also talked about the future of rock and roll. And we talked about his company, Echo Studios, and the 3D motion capture scanning that he's been doing for years. He told me what's coming down the pike when it comes to the metaverse. We talked about having a work-life balance, which is good advice for anyone, no matter where they work or what they do. And we also talked about his appreciation of dance music and so much more. 
The corresponding playlist for this week's episode is all over the place. Now, Dope are going back out on the road with Static X, Fear Factory, Mushroom Head, and Black Raven. The tour was postponed because of COVID, but it's hitting the road in 2023 and will roll into Boston at Big Night Live on March 21st. And the tickets are available now. Edsel is incredibly open, he's honest, he's forthright, and well, he just says it like it is. And that is one of the many reasons why I love him. So, allow me to introduce you to Edsel Dope. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. You're on the record now, Edsel. Uh, how are I'm you? Humble. I'm good. How about yourself? I'm good. It's good to see you again. You as well. It's uh, It's been a, about a month. I know. So I, I saw you... Um, at the Rob Zombie show. Yes, you did. And we haven't seen each other. I'm trying to remember the last time we saw each other. It was a few years at least. Obviously with the pandemic. But you know what? I think the last time I saw you actually was uh was in Boston, was uh, Dope and Static X played at the Oh, was that at the Palladium show? It was. Yeah, in Worcester, yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. And then before that, it had been a really long time. Yeah. It had been like probably 10 years. I know. It's so weird. I know we're fucking old. Shh, don't say <laughs> it like that. When I when I saw you last month, I went digging back through my old photos. And Uh-oh. I dug up this old photo of you and I at Loco Bazooka. I think it was 99 that's probably right. Ninety nine. Well, then we did a bunch of them. So yeah, I'd have to see the picture. I can I can date myself visually. <laughs> I can that, tell by uh, there's there's certain things. That's can, when we met, right? That was the beginning of dope when I was still at WAF. Yeah, we met in ninety nine. Yeah. I remember the first time we met, um, but that was not at Loco Bazooka. We met. You actually had us on your uh, on your show. Um, that was the first time we met. I think we were on tour. It was our first tour ever. I think we were on tour with Orgy at the time. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah. And then we came back and we did Loco Bazooka, which was awesome. And then we ended up doing a few of those um, and just uh, became buddies. People ask me all the time about the beginning of my radio career and what it was like to be on the air at night at a rock station like WAF used to be. 
in the height of, I guess, what people call now the new metal era, the the mid to late nineties, <laughs> and the st- like, it was as crazy as people think it was, and the way that it sounded on the air, like. The fact that we survived that era is kind of amazing. Yeah, I'll give us I'll give us a gold star for that. <laughs> um, it was also like, man, it was it was it was in a weird way, and I don't think any of us knew it was happening. It was sort of like the end of everything that had been the music business for 30, 40 years prior. And none of us saw it coming because none of us saw the collapse. None of us saw that like everything was going to go digital, that the record labels were going to completely be reinvented. But really, when you think about it, like that's what it was like that, that time frame, it really ended in like 2002. Like that was really when the walls started falling down. So those bands that went to the top at that time, and let's, let's just use an act like Kid Rock as an example, who was clearly a huge part of the new metal movement and really, you know, one of the, one of the, the acts that went the most mainstream, um, you know, he was, his whole thing was the excessiveness and just taking it all to, you know, to 14 on a, on a 10 volume knob. Um, but who would have thought that like, that was like, that was the end of it. I mean, Manson would be the other, the other side of the pendulum of just like, we'll never have acts like that again. Cause there's no mystery and there's no, you know, do you remember when, when Manson would be on tour and you'd hear rumors from people like, Oh, I heard he killed himself on stage or there was a bomb threat. Like you can't do that. Like you can't have that kind of mystery and just, I don't know. I mean, think about it this way. Music. Back in the day, nobody knew what kiss looked like for years, right. for right. years. Right. Amazing. Yeah, they're just the anonymity and the the just a whole different it's just a whole different animal. So we were really part of that whole new metal movement that you you started this conversation with was really like the last wave of the old model where there was, you know, you were were one of the very few ways for a band to get known in your marketplace. And now it's like I mean, I'll just put it like this, like back in that time frame, you know, how many new rock bands came out, you know, maybe 30 every year, maybe 40. Like if you were just a kid that went to the record store and you were like, hey, what's the you know, what's the new metal bands that came out this year? They'd point and go like, well, there's like 30 records that would be considered metal that came out this year. Now there's 30 records that come out every hour. Yeah. So there's no gatekeeper. There's no. There's no clear differential between what's a professional and what's an amateur. And the only way you can really discern it is the production value. But that doesn't even matter anymore because if you got a rich daddy, he can like, you know, pay for you to have a good producer and pay for you to have an expensive looking music videos. So there's so much noise out there now to try and, and, and see what rises to the top. But that's not really the point. The point is more just how we were part of the last, the last chapter of the old model where there was an MTV and there was like, you know, playing a late night television show actually meant something. (laughs) I tell people all the time, like I started at the radio station in 91 and they, I I learned how to edit audio with a razor blade and a tape and a grease pencil can still do it by the way. Um, 
And those totally. fundamentals are great skills to learn on. Like I challenge anybody learning to edit audio. If you can, if you can edit tape, you can use Pro Tools because no doubt, no doubt. And then, <laughs> like my first email address was a radio station email address. There are old videos of me showing how to navigate, like the revamped radio station website and ooh, look if you click this button you can listen to the station and like i look back at it now and i'm like oh my god back in the day if a record company had to deal with multiple rock stations in the same city and a band was coming out with a new song that i remember this happening for tool the record rep drove around and hid the cd in the bushes outside of all of the radio stations and then called us all at the same time and said, whoever finds it, whoever finds it gets to play it first because it's outside in the bushes because that was the only way to like level the playing field because that was, you had to have the, the physical CD. Now it's just a mass email. Oh, it's up on YouTube. Oh, it just went out. You can stream it off our website and like, you know, back when I was in programming at uh, on the radio station, it was my job to kind of be that gatekeeper. No doubt. And to sit in those music meetings as the assistant program director and the music director and go, this is what I think is really good. And this is this is what I think is going to go far and what the audience is really going to like. And to a certain extent, the Mistress Carrie podcast kind of does that because I want to have a place for these newer rock bands to be able to get some attention because like you said there's so much noise out there and also radio stations that are willing to take chances on new bands are becoming harder to find too no doubt no doubt well you know i mean gatekeeper influencer whatever word you want to use but it's like it's because your listeners trusted you and still do like your listeners know that like hey she says it's cool it's worth my time checking out or she hung out with these guys and says that they're really cool a cool band and like i should get to know more about them like you know that's what makes it personal and unfortunately that's a big part of what's missing not just from the music business nowadays but from the world yeah like that's why people can go on twitter and say such horrible things about people that they don't even know and like wish people would die it's like like it's just because it's not personal and they so they think that it's like there's there's no human looking in my eye so I can just say whatever I want. It's it's almost like I, I I like to relate it to the same concept people have when they're driving in their car and someone cuts them off and they're screaming, I want to kill that son of a bitch. It's like it's because they can't hear you like you're right. in your own little bubble. But like our worlds have become these little isolated bubbles and it's it's unfortunate Um especially when it comes to things like music, which is why they'll never take the lot. I don't believe that no matter what happens with the metaverse, no matter what happens with, with, uh, you know, just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, uh, I work in the business too. And I can't think of the word right now because my brain sometimes just stops <laughs> like virtual working. reality and the, just yeah, the, whole just the digital virtual world, world in yeah. general, like virtual concerts. That's what I was trying to say. Um, no matter what happens with all that, I don't think that you'll ever be able to take the live experience away because that's what gives people goosebumps. Like, 
that loud bass and and being around other people so that when you're excited and you let out your excitement, other people do at the same time. And it's this massive roar like that's what makes people get addicted to concerts. It makes you get addicted to the live experience. And there's nothing else like that. So, and it feels like for me, I talk about it all the time. I call it the land of misfit toys. When we go to a show, we are with our people. And there's something to be said for being in a massive place with a bunch of other people that love what you love. It's the same thing as saying, oh, well, it's the same thing of watching a football game on your couch as it is to going to a game with 70,000 screaming people in the stands. It's not. Because when you're in that big group, you're part of something and the energy and, I mean, that Taylor Hawkins tribute that they just did from London, I was in tears watching it on YouTube. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there. I probably would have been bawling my friggin' eyes out for six hours. Sure. I believe it. I mean, this shit's, it's heavy duty, man. And when you, you know, put life and death into the mix, it's a whole... It's a whole nother animal, man. I mean, we just got done doing that for almost two years. We spent on the road nightly doing the memorial for Wayne. And um, it's same thing. It's tears every night. It's like chill bumps and it's insanity. And but, you know, what is music for? It's it's for us to experience emotion and to in this certain cases to heal. And um, everybody heals different. Um, I can't imagine what Dave Grohl was going through. You know, I can't imagine what it must've been like to turn around and look behind you and see Taylor's kid playing (sighs) drums, like fucking heavy duty shit, man. And then, you know, the 50,000 people that were at Wembley watching it happen, like it's pretty priceless, you know? So I, I think the live experience and I like your analogy of the misfit toys and just, you know, having that energy in common is something that, uh, I think as long as people are willing to do it, which I think will always be, um, people will always will always gravitate to that. And it's so important with how isolated we've become in so many other ways. Well, you talk so. about I can't tell you how many times over the years since I started my radio career that I was told by bosses, um, you're taking this too personally. And while what you and I do is very different, you and I are also in different parts of the same business. And as a musician and as, I don't know what the fuck to call me, a personality, influencer, whatever it is that I do, (laughs) that it's you, right? That that I'm not playing a character when I get behind a microphone. And so ratings and all of that stuff is a judgment on whether or not people like you as a person, what you have to say, what your opinions are. And it's the same thing I would think, correct me if I'm wrong, as a musician, you're pouring all of your heart and soul and emotions into something. You created this thing. And then if people don't like it, how do you not take that personally? How are we not supposed to take, even though it's the music business, how do you not take it personally? But again, that's what makes the, 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 the comments so, um, disparaging, but also like, like I have a motto when it comes to all that shit. Like if you're going to read the good things people say about you, then you have to read the bad things people say about you. 
So I would just advise not reading any of it because it, it will keep you in the space that you should be in. Because if you get elevated by all the people that tell you that you're great, well, then you're going to lose yourself in that ego and elevation. And if you go to the dumps because all the people that tell you that you suck, well, then you're going to have a very warped perception of like what sucking is. Um, I just wish, and I'll, I'll never get my wish, but I just wish that people could act civilized online. Like, I don't understand why when you remove a person from being face to face with you, that you remove all civility from it. Like it makes no sense. And, and, and I can take it because I'm a grown ass man, but what, what really bothers me about it, and I'm going to really sound like an old guy <laughs> is think of Kurt Cobain, for instance, he was a very soft guy, really like he emotionally was emotionally raw. Yes, he was not a hard guy. That's why he was an addict. That why he that's why every song the guy wrote was like, you know, I miss the comfort and being sad. Like that dude was just he was that. Do you think that guy at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, if he would have like started recording his raw demos and putting them up on YouTube Ugh. and people told him how bad he sucked and how bad he couldn't sing, like would he have just blown his brains out earlier? Or would he would we have ever gotten to the point of getting amazing art out of that guy? And that's what bothers me is that young kids that look at the I hate to use the word bullying because I was bullied. And and, and in some ways it's good for you. But again, it's good for you when it's face to face. When when it's when when people don't have to take accountability for the bullying, for the words, for the negative energy, um, and they can so easily just just project it all over something. The fear is that you get you have kids that like, you know, most artists start out as insecure. It's part of the reason that they want to be artists, because they're looking for some kind of validation and something beyond the normal. Like, And it's not just musicians. I mean, some of the most sensitive people out there are stand up comedians. They'll sure. all tell you that. Sure, of course. But again, the stand-up comedians, at least their their platform generally is on a stage in front of people. Musicians, right. it's it usually starts with recorded audio and then it ends up on stage in front of people. But um, but but just you know most people that turn to music, in my experience, they're usually not the the most popular kid in school. They're usually not the prettiest girl in school. They're not the cheerleader. They're not the football player. They're they're a little bit more on the outcast. They're looking side. for their people. They're looking for exactly. their tribe. And and that's what bothers me is that the young kids today that are looking for their people and looking for their tribe and they pick up a guitar and they experiment because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to write 50 bad songs before you write one good one. But if those 50 bad songs and not and bad is even the wrong word. Um, but if those songs that you write in the evolution and the adventure of, of understanding songwriting and learning about your voice and learning about like what chords go together, if you put that out and you're just, just enamored with negative energy on it, how many of those kids are we going to burn out before we ever get a chance to see what their potential is. And that's where you hope they have good parents or they have good people around them that will encourage them to continue to go forward. But I really think that that's one of the biggest risks we run in this type of society that's so polarizing and so quick to just absolutely obliterate people online with their opinions is just uh, stifling 
talent before it ever has a chance to to become anything because it's not like other talents it's not like sports where it's like you 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 can go out there and you can run the 40 yard dash and you can be faster than everyone and it's like well that's undeniable but music is so it's so uh it's subjective. subjective. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there is no real good or bad. There is no. So that's why it's like it's pretty amazing to me. I'll put out a new song. And again, I try to stay away from it as much as I can. But then you'll happen to pop over and read a couple things. It's like this is the worst piece of shit I've ever heard. And it's like I'm quite certain that it's not the worst piece of shit you've ever heard. You might not like it. You might say, like, I don't like this song. OK, cool. But why does it have to go that far? far why does it have to go from i'm not into this or you know yeah i've heard better songs from this band like just how you would say it to my face like if i was sitting with you and i said hey check out this new song and you heard it and you're like man that's well i don't think that's your best work i'd be like thank you for thank you for the feedback you don't think it's my best work but this is the biggest piece of shit i've ever heard in my life you would never (laughs) say that because that you know it's not true right so I just don't understand the the need for people to do that. Everybody's got their own opinion. It's a bunch of lonely trolls in their mom's basement. I don't know that that's necessarily true either. I just I think for some reason it's 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 like being in your car with the windows rolled up and somebody cuts you off and you just feel like you're going to say all this volatile shit. But again, and then that's how in tough car. are you when that person you were yelling at stops the car and gets out? And is standing in front of your car window going, roll it down, motherfucker. Right. And and I wish that we lived in a world where social media made people accountable like that. And we don't. So we just have to accept it and figure out how to adapt and move on. But um, as the old guy in the room, that's a disappointment. (laughs) I just think about like when you and I met in that era, I'm so grateful in so many ways that like there was no TikTok and there was no... Instagram live and, and stories and, and all of, there was no Facebook. I mean, we've evolved with it. Sure. But in the early days, you and your early days of music, like what you're talking about and me, I, when I started on the air following the, the trail of destruction of Opie and Anthony getting fired and me walking into the shitstorm the hate and vitriol that I got just on the phone lines at the radio station was enough. Yeah, if that shit would have been online, you'd have probably been fired because they'd been like, nobody likes her. It's yeah. Like, what do you mean nobody likes her? And they warned me. They're like, you're walking into a to a firestorm of, you know, and, and even Opie and Anthony at one point were like, um, we got ourselves fired. She didn't get us fired. Like, right. You know. Yeah, it's crazy, dude. I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I, I, I see it two ways. I'm, I'm, I grew up when I grew up. So I loved the mystery and the anonymity. And I loved, you know, Metal Edge magazine and Alternative Press magazine when those magazines actually meant something. And it was an achievement to reach the point where those magazines would actually write about you. And they'd send a, a photographer to come take photos of you. And then they would, they would have a actual journalist do an interview with you and give their perspective on the record. And people had to apply for those jobs and they had to work hard to be established as a journalist and as a photographer and so on and so forth. So, and then there was MTV. And and like I said earlier, the late night shows that you could play that really all of those things meant something. So for me, 
that's the only that's those were the goals and the dreams. And I'm very grateful that I was able to accomplish so many of those. Now, on the flip side of the coin, knowing what I know now and taking away my own personal desire to have those experiences because I grew up wanting them. If you told me what's a better market for independent artists today's world or then, oh, oh it's all day long. It's today. A hundred percent. Like the power that that artists have now to be able to reach their fan bases, especially if they're young. Oh my God. Like to be a 20, to be me with the energy that I had and the pulse on, you know, my finger on the pulse of what was happening in 1999. If I could be that same guy in 2022, dude, I, I forget it. I would have never had those dark times in my career when we got dropped from a major label and we were suffering to try to find our audience because the only way we could get to our audience was through those gatekeepers. Right. And when you get dropped from a major label and they're no longer in business with you and in, in and, and putting, they were the go between between yourself and me at one point. And when they abandoned me, I no longer can even get to you. Other than like picking up the phone and going, hey, how you doing? You're like, well, who's working the song? Well, we're independent now. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to play your song too much because it's just the way it works. Um, Those dark days can be avoided immensely um, if you have direct access to your fan base, which we didn't have back then. And uh, so kids today, they have a whole different, uh, you know, set of challenges to overcome but man they really have an amazing platform which i'm very very uh uh envious of you know i mean back Uh, in the day if a radio station had one woman right i was i was the chick then well we got one sure and so in a lot of ways i was fortunate to become the chosen one but in a lot of other ways it was like the door got slammed behind me because, well, we only needed one woman to talk about rock music. And even then I had to kind of prove sure, that, that I knew what the balls. fuck I was talking about. And that you had balls. Yeah. For, for a lack of better words. Oh, like, I got them. I just wear them on my chest so I show off how big they are. That's right. The, you so know, you, you just had to prove you could hang, which like, you know, and, and yeah. that's that's a that's an interesting uh set of challenges there too but you you met him head on for sure does it make you more more aware of everything that we're talking about now because you're a girl dad now no uh well everything we're talking about what do you mean like what are we talking about just about the the online bullying and all of the digital pressures and kind of all of that stuff right now that that you've grown up in the era before that and raising a child now that will grow up never knowing what life was like before a smartphone the internet social media and especially the unique challenges of how that affects girls in this world now with the bullying um, and all of that stuff i would say not so much because she's so young she's only two yeah um but i will say that i i am i am more involved in it because i have a 17 year old stepson right. who's been in my life for five years so i i definitely am more in touch with it through him um but i'm also not his dad and i also wasn't around through the whole you know the whole making of him so I have to like play my role properly. So I don't, you know, I, I don't overstep. Um, but, but 
in retros or uh, in, in comparison to my daughter, though, it's certainly my my imagination has has gone into the future and wondered, like, what's it going to be like when she's 14, when she's 13? Um, but all I can do is is wait and see how that all comes to be. And m- for me, it's just more about trying to establish in my own head how I want to educate her and and how like I want to be one of those people that um, my daughter, I feel like, will be very well armed, very well equipped to understand like men and to <laughs> understand boys and to understand the power that she ultimately has um, just by being a, you know, a, a young woman. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's interesting when I, when I, I, for whatever reason, I really wanted a girl. Like when we found out that, that she was pregnant and, um, she, my, my wife really wanted a daughter as well. Cause she already had a son. Um, and for, for me, I know why, cause I ended up doing some soul searching on it. But like in the very beginning, I was like, you know, I just knew I wanted a girl. Um, but I had a talk with my older brother who, uh, has a, has a young son. And he was like, you know, what's awesome about having a daughter? And I was like, tell me, big brother. (laughs) He goes, well, he's like, they're actually a little bit more valuable. They're a little bit more precious. And I was like, why is that? He said, well, if you look at the world as a whole, if you have on average 50% of the babies born around the world are male and 50% are female, but then you think about how many places around the world women are not equal. They're not allowed to go to school. They're not allowed to just be themselves. They're, they're, they're stifled in so many ways. He's like, even though you're going to have a daughter that's raised in America where she has the freedoms, when you look at on on a global scale, a free, powerful, intelligent, uh, you know, confident woman is an incredibly, incredibly valuable and, and precious asset to the world. An important asset. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. So I thought that was a really interesting thing that I wouldn't have really thought of globally. I was just thinking about, you know, this is my daughter and I've grown up in America and of course I've traveled the world and I've seen a little bit of that, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but I definitely do not see myself as that dad. That's like, you know, trying to forbid her from dating or trying to, like, I, I want her to be like I was, I want her to be very independent and very fearless and, and very much ready to just, you know, go out in the world and, and take what she wants um, respectfully. Um, so we'll see though. I have no idea. She's two and she seems pretty crazy and pretty uh, ambitious. I mean, she's pretty fearless that but, was uh, who, that was one of the knows? that was one of the big mile markers for me when you and I saw each other um, recently was that it didn't take us long before we started showing each other pictures of our families, <laughs> which if you had told me that that's what we were going to be doing like twenty years ago when we were getting drunk backstage at shows together and acting like idiots, because like you. Um, I have bonus kids. That's what I call them, right. that I'm their bonus mom and they're my right. bonus kids. And that when I married my husband, I wasn't just marrying my husband, that I was accepting the responsibility of being another adult that watches over these kids and has their back through everything. Sure. I love it. And it, it's a it's an interesting like I've got teenage bonus kids, boy and girl. And it's very interesting when. 
you know, I didn't have my own kids. And now all of a sudden, bonus mom, yeah, purple haired I mean, radio DJ, look out. Yeah, but I don't I don't know if I've asked you this before, but for me, um, I was raised in a broken home. I, I, have, I have good relationships with both of my parents, but I also have step parents. So I I don't know why. But for me growing up, I always looked at it as a bonus because I got along great with my step parents and they were very different from my real parents. So I ultimately was was exposed to four adult role models that I know loved me and had my back that I could pick and choose and two the happy couples, right? Two people, True. two couples that were happy as opposed to well, one set enough. of parents. <laughs> yeah. Instead of one set of parents that yes. hated each other that stayed together for the kids. Yes. But, but more importantly for me, and yes, that's very, very accurate, but more importantly for me was being able to pick and choose the traits of those four people that I looked up to and respected that I wanted to incorporate into myself and then look at the traits that I was like, yeah, I'm not really with that yeah. or with that. So it just gave me more to choose from it. But because, you know, when you're a kid, like how many adults do you, other than teachers, how many adults do you really have deep conversations with like right. not very many. So I was able to do that with four people instead of two people and two of those people. There's a different trust. There's a different thing that happens with step parents than with actual parents where I feel like the kid feels a little bit more like you're their friend. Yeah. So therefore maybe they're willing to like be a little bit more open, maybe not feel as judged, maybe not feel as ashamed, maybe not feel as embarrassed. So for me, that was very powerful for my uh, upbringing. And I feel like I also incorporate that into my relationship with my stepson. And I'm sure you do the same thing. Yeah. My parents didn't me... split till they were till I was an adult, Got which it. is a totally different situation totally different. because sure. you're then involved in the divorce. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Which totally sucks. And I mean, yeah, I, my parents were divorced when I was like four. So which I, sucks I in a completely different way. No, it was cool, though. I'm not damaged from it. Like uh, they did a real good job. And like I said, I looked at all the benefits of just having more people that cared about me and yeah. more people to influence me and to learn from. So and I got two Christmases every year. Yeah, right. I mean, come on. Like that was the shit. Well, and you got two extra ways of like getting exposed to the world. And like one of totally. the things that always comes up on this is I have a theory about music, so I'll tell you my theory, you tell me if I'm wrong, that you get exposed to music at an early age from parents, aunts, uncles, older brothers, like the adults in your life. 100%. And that's the soundtrack to your childhood. And then there's a day where you hear something and you go, wait, what was that? I like that. That's mine. And it totally. changes you. Totally. So give me your soundtrack to your childhood and then tell me what that thing was that changed it all for you. So the soundtrack to my childhood would have been um, nothing particular. It would have just been top 40 radio of that time. So if you look at, you know, I was born in 74. So by the time I actually started being, you know, understanding or, you know, hearing music in the car and singing along, let's call it 78. So between 78 and like 82 would have been like 
83 would have been those years you're talking about where I had no control over what I listened to. So it would have just been whatever was on the radio. That's a lot of journey, man. A lot of journey. Yeah, yeah, but but yes, you're right. But it was more like my memory tells me, though, it was it was less rock and it was more like top 40 pop. It was more of like which I guess journey would have been involved in there, too. But it was more like, um, man, I can't even remember the acts names, but like, you know, like I will survive. Oh yeah. And like, you know, disco and like that kind of, cl- that club, a lot club of BGs. Yeah. That kind of shit. It was definitely more of that. Um, and, and in that time frame, I got introduced to kiss and, and even though that was, that's still not my moment that you're referring to, but, but somehow kiss became part of my life really young, like six years old. I was like painting my face and I had kiss. What little and- kid. I have a picture of me in like the third grade and how did, you know, the fact that people were surprised I ended up like this shocks me, but and it's, <laughs> it's me with rosary beads tied around my head <laughs> with dark purple lipstick on. And I'm standing in front of my bedroom door and it had two posters on it. Miss Piggy in a gi doing Kung Fu. Nice. And the Bicentennial Kiss Tour poster. Wow. And like, if that picture literally, like you could see an MCHQ, right? That right there behind me is a poster for Metallica and that's a Muppets poster. Like, like nothing, nothing has changed. <laughs> that, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Nothing. And then I think you have an OzFest 2001. Yeah, that is from the OzFest date here in Massachusetts. Yeah, of course. So it's like Black Sabbath, Manson, Slipknot, Papa Roach, Linkin Park. Linkin Park is like fifth on the bill. Yeah, that's the new metal. That's the new metal fest there. Crazy Town and Disturbed was headlining the second stage. Yeah, that was a big tour. Big deal. That was OzFest 2001. Love it. But so Crazy. my big aha moment, though, was uh, I was probably 12 and it was Motley Crue looks to kill. Yeah, I think it was because it had so much in common with Kiss because, you know, as a kid, I was really into Kiss and then I kind of grew out of it and did whatever I did. And I don't even remember what that was, but um, but music was less important to me. And then it was was watching MTV and Motley Crue looks to kill came on and then. I have a funny story that goes along with that. Um, I, I, I've been working since I was, since I can remember, like I was either selling newspapers at nine years old or I was selling candy door to door. I did. I sold candy door to door for two years from 12 and 13 years old. I was making like $300 a week. My mom was borrowing money from me. This is back in the early eighties. Um, which is ultimately what led me dropping out of school. Cause I just was like, I want to make money. I don't want to, you know, learn a bunch of dumb shit. I don't care about, <laughs> but, um, but so I was probably 10 or 11, maybe 12 years old when looks that kill came out. And, um, so I, I, I had my own money from my job and my uncle took me to peaches records. I don't know if you remember peaches, but they were in the South. Cause I we had strawberries. Peaches. Got it. We had peaches. So I went to peaches records and I and I got the vinyl for Shout at the Devil in my hand. It's the black on black with the pentagram, and you flip it over, and there's fire and yes! fucking that was shit. Face paint and dude, yes. And then the worst thing that ever happened to me happens. My uncle goes, "You don't want that." And I went, "What do you mean I don't want that? I worked all fucking, I waited all week for this." He's like, "No, no, 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 no." 
if you think that's good, you really want this. And he takes shout at the devil out of my hand and he puts it back on the rack. And well, now I know exactly what year it was. I was 10 years old. And he hands me 1984 from Van Halen. Oh, God. With the little baby on the yes, front cover with the cigarette and the wings. And he goes, this is what you want. And I go, really? His name is Robbie. I go, really, Robbie? And he's like, yeah, trust me. And I go, okay. I went home and I put that on my turntable. It was the most disappointing day of my <laughs> life. No offense to Van Halen or Van Halen fans. Great record in retrospect. But that was absolutely miserable, and I and I was so disappointed. And the next week when he took me back to Peaches, I was holding on to that Motley Crue record like nothing, and I would not let it go. And, uh, yeah, so 1984, I was 10 years old. Well, look it at the Motley records Crue. that came out then, like Def Leppard, Pyromania. Oh, my God. Van Halen, 1984, the Crew. I mean, that was such a defining and, – and most people would look at – Motley Crue and Van Halen and Def Leppard, like in 1984, is kind of all the same, but the nuances were different because while sure. Van Halen was was rebellious, I mean, Christ, they had a toddler smoking a cigarette on the cover of the record, but there was a perception difference between that early crew. Right, it's like Lincoln Parker Slipknot. Yeah, it was. They're on the same tour together, but one of them's terrifying, <laughs> and the other one is like amazing melodies and amazing entertainment so you can yeah. comparison van halen to motley Crue to lincoln park and slipknot like yeah. they're on the same tour but it's a and it's the same genre right. and you can like them both yeah but it's a completely different experience yeah and i wanted the scary shit <laughs> well that's, that's what i wanted that's there's a few reasons why you and i have stayed friends as long as we have one is that we share a lot of the same taste in music, obviously. Two, that we came up in the business around the same time. And three, that we're both hustlers that learned an overactive work ethic at a very early age. For sure. That when you grow up in a family business or you grow up just working and learning the value of a dollar. I mean, I paid for my first year of college with money my grandfather put aside for me when I worked in his bakery selling vegetables before I was old enough to like go to school. He taught me how those lead weights work and that if you put a one pound lead weight on one side and you fill the green beans up till the tail, till the scale tips, that's a pound and this is what it costs per pound. Before I went to kindergarten, I could ch count change back from a 20. Awesome. And they thought I was a math whiz. And I was like, no, I just have a Sicilian grandfather that lived through the depression. Awesome. I know how to count money. Yeah. And I think that to go back to what you were talking about, the change in technology, the change in the industry, the reason why you were able to sustain getting dropped from a major label and continue the band and your career forward. And the same way that I've been able to reinvent my career after my radio station goes out of business is that you don't know what else to do, but work. Sure. Like you just, you just like, okay, so you put a wall up there. Okay. I'm going to go over it, under it, through it, around it. I'm going to, sit back and study it and then figure out how to blow it up. Like 
some people are just like that and other people aren't, I've learned in my old age. And people think I I work myself to death and that I'm crazy. People must say that about you too. Yeah, and they're partially right. You know, Um, I will say that like, um, you know, I think we're, everyone's different and I don't, you know, I've always been a workaholic. I've, I work, um, and also my passion became my job. And that's a tricky one that I actually try to encourage younger people that I meet to, to, to not do that. Like to, and it's weird because yes, you, you want to have, you want to not hate your job, but I think that when your passion is your job, two things happen. One, you work way more than most people do because you're passionate about what you're doing. So a lot of times it doesn't feel like work, but then it also does. But what, what really happened to me was that I used to do music to feel better. Like I used to do music to get over things that were affecting me. And I, I won't say that I used to, cause I still do to some degree, but it's very different, man. Like when, when it becomes your, especially when you're as ambitious as I am and you, and you're not just in a band because for many, many years of my career, very early on, I found ways to make additional revenue in the music business that had nothing to do with my band. So I was constantly recording faceless music for ESPN or for video games or scoring some crappy movie or whatever it was that I was doing to get paid. And that's what I mean by like, all I did was record and write music so much to where I got to a point where it was like, it's not fun. I'm not, I'm not seeking out my guitar to heal anymore. Right. I'm looking at my guitar and I'm like disgusted by it. It's like, <laughs> Hey, you want to pick that up and play it? And I'm like, how much am I getting paid? Cause like, I need to get the fuck away from it. Um, so yeah, it, it's weird. And that's why, you know, at now I finally feel like I've kind of figured it out where I still have too much going on, but I'm much more diversified now. It's like, I have my music parts of my business and then I have my other parts of business that have nothing to do with music. And then I also have kids, which the, the, the weird, the best way I can put it with kids for me, and this doesn't not for everybody, but because I am a workaholic, um, the one thing, if you would have asked me before I had a kid, what does my life lack? I would have told you joy and I would have been true. By saying that. And that's been something that through the entire course of my adult life, it's part of why I've suffered from depression and anxiety, part of why I probably became an artist looking for that validation and wanted to be in a band and have girls like me and all that shit. Um, lacking joy has been something that has always been sort of a dark cloud. When I had my daughter, um, it's like, is it more pressure? Sure. Do I have more responsibility? Sure. Is it more stress? Sure. But I'm accustomed to stress and pressure and responsibility. So just adding more of that to me, it doesn't do anything. I just go like, yeah. So every day I wake up and I have a list that's this big of things I have to handle and manage and take care of. But now I have a constant thread of joy in my life that I never could have gotten anywhere else. And it's unavoidable. Because all you have to do is pick up the little person who goes, daddy, and like <laughs> smiles at you and you all of it. I mean, look, you smile. Yeah. And 
And that's something that like I I can guarantee you there were many days, weeks even in my life where I'd be locked in a room working on music or working on business. And maybe I'd see a business partner and maybe I would laugh at a little joke they told me or I would laugh at something I saw on TV. But that's not joy. That's a moment of right. laughter. Um, now they're regular every day. They happen because you have this little person. So um, I ne- didn't plan for that. That's not why I had a kid. But I will tell you, that's been the most beneficial change to my life is 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 that I now have a constant stream of joy in my life that has always evaded me. Some people, it doesn't evade them. Some people are very joyful in general and they have kids and it just gives them more joy. But for me, joy had avoided me the majority of my life, even in my successes. I, 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 uh, I sort of relate to myself as being a destination person, not a journey person. Mm. And, and, and generally I'm the, I'm the captain of the ship. So I look at it like, okay, I'm captaining this ship and it's beautiful blue water and there's palm trees and all these people that are on the ship that I'm ultimately captaining, like they're looking at the water and they're enjoying themselves. And like, it's pulling up to the beach now and they're all jumping off and like throwing sand at each other and dipping their feet in the water. And I'm plugging all the holes in the boat and I'm making sure that the mass is fixed and that the, the sail is good and that we have the backups and that the motor is good. You and, and I like, are okay, so alike. It's not even get the funny. fuck back on the boat because we're headed to the next Island now. Yeah. So I didn't even get a chance to, to like celebrate the Island I was on because being even though you say I'm a destination person, by the time I've gotten to the destination that I'm going after, I've already set course for the new one and I'm preparing for it. So it's weird. And, and I can attribute that to so many things in my life. Like people come to the shows and they're like, dude, you you're so good on stage and you have you control the crowd so well and you must really enjoy it. It's like, yeah, kind of. But like I, I really like what's your favorite song to play? The last one? <laughs> like why well because as soon as i hit that last note and say thank you good night like i can look around and go okay the crowd loved it they reacted to everything i needed them to react to to have the experience that i wanted them to have no one got hurt the equipment didn't fail the the no like we're probably going to get paid <laughs> everything worked and now it's like okay now on to the next one so that's definitely a character flaw because it stops me from enjoying things that most people would enjoy or think that I would enjoy. But it's also a big part of what I think makes me a good leader and makes me good at achieving. And I went to a shrink many years ago and uh, they did this big evaluation on me and they, they ultimately, or we ultimately came to realize that, that I value achievement more than anything. Um, that's just what that's how my hustle works like it's all about like achieving goals and 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 man when you set the kind of goals that i've set in my life that for most people are unattainable and then you attain them then you're just reinforced with confidence that i can do anything like if i put my mind to it and i work my ass off i can achieve anything and i hope to pass that on to my kids as well because i do really believe that to be true i believe that you know life starts off and you have such width to what's possible for you and it gets narrower the older you get and there's this old saying that like there's a scary day that comes in every grown person's life where what you could be is replaced by what you have become 
So the goal the midlife me, crisis right there. That's right. what it is. Right. The goal to me is is to encourage young people to keep that as wide as you can for as long as you can. Believe in yourself, work super, super, super hard and go after the top, because if you miss the top, well, there's a lot of other places that you can hit that still land you in a good spot. But if you aim really low, like I just don't understand that mentality. Yeah. So that's um, why I started skydiving, because I think (laughs) about the same stuff that you do. And skydiving was the first thing that I ever did that forced me by fear of death to let go to to let go and to also be absolutely 100% present in the moment oh sure you can't take your bullshit up there and be worried no. about paying the mortgage cuz you're falling a thousand feet every 4 to 5 seconds so the amount of time the window the margin of error and so for me that minute in free fall my mind got so clear and so focused that that was the addiction of it is that I would land and be like, there's two kinds of people. The kind of person that lands goes, oh my God, I cheated death. I'm so glad I did it, but I never want to do it again. And then there's the person like me that's like, I want to experience that over and over again as much as possible. Right. I want to go higher and, and drop longer. Yeah. And like, because I want that clarity of vision. Sure. And I think whatever it is in this world that you can find that gives you the quiet, finding the quiet is so hard. And so people are like, you realize how fucked up that is, that you have to jump out of a perfectly good airplane to find the quiet. Like, that's how you know that that maybe. I haven't found the quiet. (laughs) I haven't found. Actually, I have. The quiet for me is is a there's a little island in the Caribbean that I go to. I haven't gone since my daughter was born, but that's my quiet. Not the same as what you're talking about, but it's a very hard thing to find that peace. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you get to that point in life that you're talking about, where you start evaluating and start figuring it out, you and I also have found a way, which is so funny that our lives just continual, you know, continually end up on this parallel that when you also have someone that's successful in their own right, that chooses you and says, no, 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 out of all of the, you know, my husband jokes all the time that out of the 4 billion women on this planet, I picked you. And there's something to be said for finding that person that's like, I've seen you at your best. I've seen you at your worst. I understand the crazy in your brain and I'm all in. Yeah. That's a hard thing to find. Yeah. It's crazy, man. For sure. It's weird. That's how I know you're happily married, dude, because you couldn't get your webcam to work. If you were an unhappily married guy, you'd be like, my webcam works fine. I was on it late last night while my wife was sleeping. (laughs) Well, for the record, my (laughs) webcam does work. Um, it's that I bought a new one so I would look better. Oh, and uh, and it, and I can't make the audio work with it because it's one of those things where the only thing I ever use Zoom for is is all my non music related business shit, just yeah. like administrative meetings and stuff for my yeah. tech company. But now that I'm putting out a new record, I'm starting to do all these Zoom interviews, like what I'm doing with you, and I'm like, man, I look a little busted. <laughs> so like, 
this one's got like a nice little ring light on it. And I was like, that'll be good. It's like cheap enough to where I don't feel like I'm wasting a bunch of money, but at least I can put some a little bit better produced content out there for myself, but I can't figure out the audio of it. So it's probably a setting somewhere on my computer and I'll figure it out. So you get you get me with the ugly lights today. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I love I you it's regardless. A, yeah, the good thing is that I'm, I'm known as being a metal dude, so it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah, and that's the difference between men and women in this business is that you get a True. pass. True. You get and a I pass. I'll people, take it. People will criticize like Lita Ford for having a wrinkle. It's like I know, right? Lita it's Ford's like, dude, she's lucky 70. she lived through the fucking eighties. I know, dude, and and it's amazing too how like it like Joan Jett's one of them where you go like and, and share. You go like how yeah. how do they still look great? Money, even if it's Photoshop. Like Money. I don't give a fuck. It's just God bless them. Yeah, money. Yeah, that's a hard. That's a hard gig. Being got a some, woman in general is a hard gig. You got some good money, some good nutrition, a personal trainer. Yeah, the good sunscreen. Yeah, you know, you just just afford all of that stuff. So yeah, you're talking about you're talking about having a new record come out. So I want to go back. You said going to Peaches down south. So go back to the beginning. Where where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I grew up. I was born in Melbourne, Florida. Um, but my parents got divorced when I was really young and my mother moved south to West Palm Beach, which is, um, uh, you know, just just west of Donald Trump's Mile Largo. That's what um, I was going to say. Like, not Palm Beach. Definitely not Palm. There's a big difference between Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. Yeah. Palm Beach um, is like an island and you have to go over like the causeway to get there. Yes. And you and I aren't allowed on the causeway. Right. Correct. <laughs> I mean... Yes. Uh, so I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida. And then at a very early age, like I moved out of my house. Like I told you earlier, I started working at a really young age. And by the time I was 16 years old, like my driver's license was like, that was it for me. Like once yeah. I could drive, that was all the freedom I needed. I was playing in a band in Fort Lauderdale slash Miami at the age of 16 years old. I answered an ad in a local uh, rag magazine for a, a band that was almost got signed. Like they had major labels looking at them. They had, you know, like a real following, like a real band with real management. And, um, you know, the dudes in that band were like 28, 26, <laughs> 25. And I'm this 16 year old little kid. And I auditioned for the band and I got the gig. Cause I was just a bad motherfucker. I was a drummer back then. And, um, so that's actually what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a drummer. Um, this and story comes up a lot. People that end up behind the microphone originally yeah. started behind the drums. Well, my, mine's really easy, though. It's my ambition. It's like, because, again, it was watching Motley Crue. It was Tommy Lee in the Looks That Kill video that made me go, I want to be that guy. And then I, I got really good, got myself into a real opportunity at a super young age. And I say this with all due respect, because the singer of that band that I was in, very talented guy, played guitar and sang, um... But like I noticed very early on, I was like, OK, we got a show coming up and I'm at the I'm promoting. I'm hanging freaking posters and flyers everywhere. And dude, I was nuts. I would go and I would I would uh, I would put up flyers on the light poles at the nightclubs. And then I would come back the next day and another band had like put their flyers over it. So I started I got wallpaper glue. And I would wallpaper glue the shit and then I would rub Crisco all over it. So nothing would stick. So, dude, you could still go to that parking lot to this day. And there's probably still flyers from my band from 30 fucking years ago. Um, but I would do all this work. And my singer at the time would like wait tables and smoke weed and like just 
act as if we were just going to make it. And I was like, I don't think that's how it works, dude. Like, I know you're good looking and you, you play guitar well and you sing good, but like, there's so many more elements of this from a marketing and a promotional standpoint that we're going to need to do to get where we got to go. And it took me about a year of being in that band. And I was like, if I want to make it, I have to become that guy because if that guy fucking falters, yeah. I go down with him. Yep. Because unfortunately, that's just the way bands are built. Generally, you know, unless the band reaches a very, very large degree of success, if that guy decides he doesn't want to do it anymore or he just fucking blows it, that's it. Yeah. Examples so, of the um, drummer run running the band are few and far between. They do yeah, exist, man, but they do. But so I, uh, I, I, that was it for me at like 17 years old. I, uh, I bought a little shitty four track and I bought a, a, a crappy bass guitar off a friend of mine and uh, spent like 600 bucks total. I bought a guitar, a bass and a four track. And I just started writing awful songs and singing into a crappy little radio shack mic and trying to like convince myself that I could do it. And then like my brother introduced me to industrial music and I was like, Ooh, this makes it even easier. Because now it's more of just like cool, eclectic sounds and like the vocals don't have to be so singy. They can be just, you know, you can distort them and it can be more just so that gave me a whole new perspective on what was possible. Do you remember um, the first song that you wrote? I, I, I remember the first collection of songs that I wrote. I remember like the first group of songs that I wrote. Um, they were much more like um, singer songwriter kind of like Nirvana kind of things because it was in it was when I was 17 years old. That was when that stuff was happening. Um, and then uh, and I actually it's funny because as I've gotten older, had I been influenced in a different way musically, who knows what would have happened for me, but I've come to understand as a producer and as a singer, like what I'm actually really good at. Um, it's not what I became successful for. Like I became successful in like active rock and metal, but I don't have an active rock voice. In fact, it's a lot of what held dope back from becoming more mainstream was that I don't have that, you know, you know what it is, that active rock tone, that Aaron Lewis tone, yeah. that, Corey Taylor tone, the stone sour, you don't need to bother tone. Like if I were to pick up an acoustic guitar and sing you bother, you wouldn't melt. Whereas <laughs> if Aaron Lewis were to sing you bother, you would melt because they have that similar tone. Um, there's a lot of guys I could name that fall into that. Pretty much every active rock successful singer kind of falls in that. It's shocking that, that. that Corey has it considering it, it is considering what he does in Slipknot. That guy's just not human. He's, He's just not, not fair. He's and 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 there's and and all the more reason that like you know everybody thought when Slipknot came out, okay, nine mental patients from Iowa wearing masks, <laughs> terrifying the world. But who would have thought that like it was fronted by arguably one of the greatest tone vocally of our time? Dave like, Grohl from the Foo Fighters told me in an interview that the greatest singer he has ever worked with in the studio was Corey Taylor. I believe it. And Dave Grohl's another one that has amazing tone. But so back to me, um, <laughs> I, I don't have that tone. Um, and, and again, it's it's a lot of what I believe sort of capped the ceiling on dope having to to be what it what it was 
Um, but, but if I were to say, what would I have been better off doing? Like if I would have been a kid that at that same age that I was, I was exposed to ministry and nine inch nails, and that's where my career went. If somebody would have taken me to a warp tour and showed me rancid and showed me blink 182, I would have excelled probably much greater because the tone of my voice is much more blink 182 or pierce the veil like i could sing that shit all day long and you wouldn't you would be like no way but i could play you shit i've written and recorded that i was not for dope that you'd be like i can't even believe that's you but it's like (laughs) but that's what and i so effortlessly can do it but for me to try to sing like Corey taylor or like you know those those active rock guys like i have to think about it it's not just what comes natural to me so um so anyway yeah I, i I took the route I took because I was inspired by the darker side of things. Um, and then by the time I was 19, 20, I think 20, maybe 21, I had really figured it out and I had watched enough bands either make it or not make it out of South Florida. And I understood the process of what it takes to like get a label to come see you. And then, oh, well, now they have to send the A&R guy down to see you. Oh, now they need to send the VP down. I was like, this process is fucking agony. It takes forever. I was like, I'm just going to move to New York City where there's labels, and I'm going to play – I'm going to blow up there. I'm going to play five shows and have a bidding war. And people were like, oh, whatever you say, kid. And that's exactly <laughs> what I did. I moved to New York and took all my marketing and 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 promotional savvy and my ambition – And I unleashed it on New York City and did all of that before I ever played a show. Like I looked at it like the the only reason that people care about bands that they haven't heard of is because they're they're uh, they're they're uh, they're inundated with it, like they're exposed to it. So I was like, that's the that's why a band is local is because they have no exposure. Well, what if I spend my own money? And I sold drugs at the time. So that whole goal was to sell drugs to make money. I took the NWA approach. I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm I'm only selling drugs for the band. That's the only reason I did it, because I needed money to market and promote my band. So I'm gonna go and then I'm gonna spend a bunch of money just like a label would to make sampler cassettes and posters and all these things that local bands don't have. And I'm gonna make it look like a real band. That's what I was gonna, gonna say. It's all about looking legit. Totally. And sounding too. Like yeah. I had, if the audio would have sucked, it wouldn't have mattered. But so I put together a package that was, for a lack of better words, undeniable. It looked, it passed the smell test all day long. And then um, I strategically targeted other bands that were in the genre, whether it be, you know, Corn or whoever would come to town and play Roseland in New York City. I would make sure that every single person standing in line got a little package that was a six song cassette tape because there were cassettes back then. Oh, I remember well, dude, and a flyer to our first show. So for six months, I promoted this band and this band's debut show as if a label was doing it. And the first show was sold out with a line of kids down the block with their faces painted, like that were just like treated us like we were a national band. Like we walked on the stage and it was like an eruption. And after the show, everybody wanted to meet us and take pictures with us. And it was all just because of the way that it was presented to them. And because we didn't allow ourselves to be a local band, no one knew who we were. We didn't go out to local shows and show our faces. Like we had the same mystery that a national act would have had. 
And exactly as I predicted, like after that first show, our lawyer's phone was ringing with like, who the fuck is this band dope that just had a line down the block and sold out, you know, a show on St. Mark's. Um, so it took us five shows and and we had a deal. Um, and, you know, that was that takes us to 1999 when I met you. Yeah. And you were I tell people all the time I had ended up in New York for some reason, work reason. And I hit you up and I said, hey, I'm coming to New York. We got to hang. And I remember you and I, I think we went out for coffee or, or something. We were just hanging out and we were talking about business stuff. And I remember very specifically, this was right around the time that Pro Tools and all of that stuff was coming out. And you were the first musician that I knew that was like, there's this new thing. And I am going to learn how it works. And I want to be better at it than everybody because then I can never be fired. Then I'll never be out of a job. Yeah. And you and I had this whole conversation about, about being aware that we were in this cyclone and that moment. And what if the cyclone stops spinning? Like we're playing musical chairs and what if, what if there's no chair for us? Like what happens and you were like, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn how to use this Pro Tools fucking thing that just came out. And I'm because everybody else is going to want to use it and I'm going to know how to use it. And then I'll always be able to make money. Yeah, that, it was a two for me. It was two. It was two tiered. It was I'll always be able to make money in music, but it was also I won't have to go to studios to pay for studio time to make my own records. Yeah. Yeah. And in the beginning, that's what it was for me because I had uh, like lesser quality software that was available in the late 90s, which is how I recorded my demos and all those things that got me popular. And then when I got my record deal, then I learned, okay, it's there's logic and there's Pro Tools. And I liked Pro Tools and I saw where it was going and it was, wasn't a very difficult user interface. Um, but ultimately for me, like that was the key to me not, not go, falling to the wayside when we got dropped because what I learned really quick was that I could just do what are now very, very common, but just all in deals where I would go to a label because we still felt that we needed a label back then. And I would say, well, look, how much money are you going to give me for this record? Well, you know, the recording budget and the video budget and all these different things that equals this much. And I was like, all right, well, you're just going to give that to me. You'd be like, what? Like, yeah, you don't have to give it to me now, but like, you're not going to write a check to a studio because I'm going to bring you a finished mastered record. And they were like, well, how are you going to do that? Like, don't fucking worry about it. That's as long as you put it on your stereo and you listen to it and you're happy with it, it doesn't fucking matter how I got it to you. Just know that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to bring you finished artwork and I'm going to bring you photos and I'm going to bring you a, a directed a music video or two or three or whatever the deal called for. Um, and that was the next thing I did. I started getting into video production and all that shit. So whereas like today, 25 years later, I hate to say it, but I fucking do it all. Like I produce my records, I fucking mix them, which is agony. Then I direct <laughs> the music videos and then I edit the music videos. So it's like the only thing I don't do is like color correction in, in my music videos because it's just a time consuming thing that I don't need to do. And like visual effects on music videos, but everything else, like it all goes through me, which is great because I, I can save money from having to pay people. Um, but the drag of it is it it makes it a slower process for me 
because there's only one of you and there's only so many hours in the day. And there's also the reality that I also have the kind of brain that likes to try everything before I consider something done. So it's like whether it's a song or a video, I might cut it or arrange it five different ways, not because I didn't like the original way, but I'm going, well, well, I might like it better if I do this. And then I go down 32 rabbit holes and maybe I still wind up where I started. But at least I know like that's the best way for it to wind up for me. So um, I def and there's no and then I'm the only one imposing deadlines, too, because I'm also the manager of the band and now on the record <laughs> label, too. So like no one's going to me, dude, that has to be delivered by February 15th. Like I'm like, well, if I don't have it done by February 15th, it just gets pushed. What are you going to do? Fire me. So yeah, your boss is the- a dick. Yeah, that's the only <laughs> negative that like, you know, that's why it took me six years in between albums this time, because I got too much going on and I do and, and it all runs through me. So I I believe that this will be the last full length album that I'll ever make, because I feel like it's not the right model for people's attention spans now anyway. And it's not the best model for me to function in a productive manner. I'll just put a song out when it's done. And I'll put and I'll just shoot a music video. And That's it's like, how it's it less, used to be. Look dude. at look at the fifties. They released right. singles with a B side on a forty five. The concept the of the I album yeah. that came out in the sixties, but the early days of the music business was all single driven. And it was in the album model just became a better way to make more money for the labels to put out right. a bigger thing to charge more money. Which at this point in the game. I could care less. I don't know if you've noticed, but like I'm not, I'm giving my album away for free. So it's, I don't even give a shit about that. Um, but I felt like after it being so long and also because the, the, the last album I put out before this one was titled blood money part one, which gave everybody the feeling that like there was going to be another part to it, which was true. And most of the music written on this new album came from that same time frame. So I, I, that's why I felt compelled and almost like responsible for putting out another full length that sort of wraps up Blood Money. I ended up going the other direction and calling it Blood Money Part Zero. I was going to say, like, if you're going to number records, you're kind of doing it backwards. Yeah, I, I ended up going with the prequel instead of the sequel. Um, it felt it felt more appropriate to me. And it also like also allowed me to troll the trolls with this whole static X thing that's going on because they have nothing to do with one another. Um, but it just gave me a way to just, you know, fuck with people. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I felt the responsibility to put out this as a full length. But after this, I got tons of shit recorded and I'll just put stuff out when I want to and when it feels like it's done and and it just feels like less pressure. And I think the fans will be happier with a steady stream of content instead of waiting years to get this big thing, um, which just feels like more pressure for me and just not it's not fun that way for me. But I had to go through the process and we're almost there. So. I mean, some artists, the songs, you know. Like imagine Pink Floyd releasing one track at a time of the wall. Like there are just certain things that it's required to release as a body of work. Sure. But other times it's like, I but feel people like people wouldn't consume the wall today the way they consumed it back then. Either. Right. You're right. Think about that. Like you would release the wall today and people would be like, yeah, I got track two and three in the playlist. The rest of it's crap. <laughs> Because they listen to it one time. so true. Dude, that's the other big disappointment about releasing a full album nowadays is I feel like people literally, they put it on their their player, they hit play. They listen to 45 seconds of a song 
and they may never listen to it again because they've just decided in that 45 seconds that like, ah, yeah, let me move on. And back in the day, because there was far less content, people had more time. There were also radio stations that only played you one song from the artist at a time. And if the song was reacting, they played the shit out of it. How many songs did you play or hear in your life that you were like, yeah, the first 10 times I heard it, I don't know if I liked it, but now it's one of my favorite songs ever. Yeah. That shit is missing. Yeah, like people's attention spans are so short. It's another reason that it just makes putting out albums that much more discouraging for an artist to go like, why bother? Like people don't want to consume that much content from you anyway. Some, some people do, but the majority of people really don't. I think if you gave them one song at a time, you have a much better chance, which is I'm kind of doing that as a human experiment right now. Um, my album doesn't come out until February. But that just means that's when the last song will be released. What I started doing was I released two songs when we announced it. And I'm releasing a song a month until actually a song every three weeks until we get to February. And then the last song will be released. So I am kind of testing that by putting out a song and going, here's a song. And you got three weeks to absorb it and consume it and either like it or don't like it. And then you'll get another song three weeks later. So I think by doing that, for the people that are actually engaged with the band, they'll probably listen to that song more than they would have. If I just would have given them 13 and gone, here you go. Like they may have listened to that song one time and passed on it because, but now since it's the only one they have, maybe they actually will listen to it a few times before they make up their mind. I don't know. And you know, what's funny is that on my side of things, from my experience being a radio DJ for the lion's share of my career, it was all about the small segments, right? That, that me going on the air, it was like, okay, I've got 35 seconds or 45 seconds, or if there's a band in the studio, I've got a few minutes and then we got to get into the song and we got to get into commercials on time. And you know, the, the record people and the manager and even the band are like, well, we got to plug the show tonight. We got to plug the record that's coming out. And it didn't leave any room for anything. And right. so while you're getting more and more fragmented, my side of the business is getting longer form because right. what people are realizing is that they wanted to hear more. The conversations you and I had before we did the interviews on the air. We're way cooler. We're way cooler. The conversations oh. we had after the show at the concert on the tour bus, that's the good stuff. You may not remember this, but you threw me under the bus the first time we ever met. I did? Yep. Totally and it sounds was funny like something because, I would have done. Because after the interview, I can't remember who it was in my, my band, but whoever, somebody was like, that was fucked up. And I was like, that was a little fucked up, but I kind of like her for it. <laughs> it was, and, and it was, but, but uh, you, first time I met you, we came in and uh, we sat down and we talked for a few minutes, like you were talking about without press and record. And then you said, is there anything that you don't want to talk about? And I said, honestly, yeah, I really don't want to talk about Marilyn Manson. And you were like, why? I was like, well, we get compared to Manson a lot because back then we did. And it was a bit unfair. We yeah. got compared to them a lot more than we than we should have. Yeah. Um, but and it was also because I truly did have a past with those guys. Like I grew up with all those guys in Fort Lauderdale and they were right. my friends. And so I had a whole backstory, but I but I wasn't using that backstory to promote my band. 
I wasn't wasn't talking about how I grew up with those guys or that the drummer of Manson was my best friend in the world. Like I wasn't using that relationship to try to move my band forward. Yeah, you weren't felt, writing on coattails. You were establishing right, it felt yourself. wrong to do that. Yeah. But so but by but naturally for, you know, for the timeline and everything like that, people just wanted to use Manson as a reference point for dope because we didn't drop tune. We didn't sound like corn. We didn't sound like Limp Biscuit. So there was really the, the and zombie for whatever. I guess we got compared to zombie, but maybe it's because my hair was so long, whatever it was. We got the Manson comparison more than anything. And I just didn't want that to be the topic. So that's what I said to you. I said, and, and you didn't ask me too deep on it, or maybe you did, but I gave you a very short answer as to why. But I was like, yeah, I just don't really want to talk about Marilyn Manson. You were like, okay. All right, you guys ready? Yeah, we're ready. Record. So tell me, what is it with you and Marilyn Manson? And I went, <laughs> wow. And I, and I think my answer was something along the lines of, uh, you know, Manson's a great band and, you know, I, uh, you know, wish them a lot of success, which they're obviously having, but we get compared to them a lot. And it just, I want to stand on our own two feet. And you were like, oh, I like that answer. And then we just moved on and that was it. But I was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what you did. That was your, that was your first meeting with me. And I was like, all right, good, good thing. I'm a good sport. So that, so there's two things, right? Cause obviously when I met you, I was still very new at what I was doing. Uh, there was the, don't tell me what not to ask you thing. I stopped, by the way, asking artists what not to talk to them about. Well, clearly, because there was no point. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the other thing was, it's a little bit in skydiving, we call it target fixation, where if there's one place you're not supposed to land, it's the only thing you pay attention to as you're coming down, and then you inadvertently end up landing there. Great. And so it's one of those things where it's like, I understand why people don't want to talk about certain things, but I also view it as my responsibility that, look, it's not up to me to gatekeep, to use your term, the audience from the things they're wondering about. It's up to you, you knowing that you're going to grow up, you know, that you're going to get asked about it because you're from the same area and the music. And so part of it was, I'm still trying to figure this out because I didn't come up being on the air. Like I was a roadie that thought I was going to be a radio producer. And I'm like, I didn't like, I didn't even go to college to be a DJ. So I was like, all right, well, I'm the only girl in the room. And I got this bunch of dudes that tell me this is what they don't want to talk about. Guess what we're talking about? Yeah, no, I, I, I translated that more as you just being like, Almost um, because you obviously didn't have a fucking clue who I was at that time. Like we we were nobody. Our first record wasn't even out yet. Like you didn't know if I was smart, if I was a douchebag. I'm sure I came off partially like a douchebag because that's just who I was at the time. Whatever. But um, but my point is, I think that was more of just your way of like going like, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't I'm like you're in my you're let me let you let me make sure you know where you are. You're in my booth. You're in you're on my time right now. And that's why I respected it, because like even though it was uh, it was like, all right, I see the game you're playing here. I was also like she just sat down. She just set it down. She just unzipped her pants and went. Yeah. Tommy Lee style. Okay, All right. Which was Um, really hard for me to learn. Right. Because in the early days, you know, you get given an opportunity as the token chick. Right. 
and you get put in that studio. And for a while, I, I probably had the longest fucking radio audition ever because it was months and months and months before I knew whether or not I was going to get the job or not. Sure. And so you're in that mid to late 90s new metal thing that was so dick driven. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous. And you're trying to make a name for yourself and you're trying to show. I mean, it was very rare that I was in a room with another woman. Sure. And you just have a bunch of dirty dick fool dudes coming in and just trying to run over you. Yeah. And thinking so, that they're important. Like, I'm a cool guy in a band. I'm important. And you're like, dude. And I you're see like, come over like here and sit on day. my lap, honey. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you yeah. know. And so I don't, I, I don't you're remember. Like, I see this every day. Yeah. And I don't remember doing that to you. Because you probably did it to 30 other people. <laughs> <laughs> so why would you? But it, but I'm like, wow, where the fuck did you get those balls? You like, I had no business. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, but. Yeah. But again, I, I, I attribute it because I had the same kind of balls, yeah. but like then they weren't earned either. And I think that's what it was. I think it was this little, this little joust that probably, cause I don't remember the conversation before other than remembering that it was, it was positive, but there was probably this little ego joust happening between the two of us that like these two unproven, you know, kids yeah. trying to like stake their claim. And this was just your way of going like, I just want to let you know where you are. Yeah. You're in my house. And I, and, and I, it was a good lesson for me. <laughs> it was like, I, I, I never made that mistake again of having a, a anybody ask me like, what don't you want to talk about and giving them an honest <laughs> answer. Like I, I, I was like, all right, that you got me. And, and that's I, why I wasn't mad about it. And I had to have the the experience of getting to a point in my career where I got interviewed. And mm. that and that was really weird for me because I learned early on how much power the interviewer has. Not only to steer the interview in a way that maybe the person being interviewed doesn't want to go, but also even if you walk out of there thinking that went really great, that the person has the audio and can manipulate it sure. any way they want. 100%. And make you sound smarter or dumber or, you know, inept, that they can take that snippet and-, and Context and make, is everything. It 100% is everything. And that that was a defining thing for me because that changed- how I welcomed the bands into the studio. It changed how I did my job because I went from, well, first of all, I didn't have to prove myself after a while. Once you've proven yourself, sure. you're proven. Sure. But, but it also, I didn't want it to be a duel. I wanted it to be a dance. And there's a difference between a duel and a dance. Of course. And I wanted it to become more relationship-based and to give the audience the opportunity to learn about the bands they loved the way that I got to know you guys. Because I got to see the real you, to sit around and debate whether waffle fries or regular cut fries with the skin on or off or better. Because these are the ridiculous conversations we would have late at night. And and the, audi the audience, pre-Twitter, pre-all of that, where they didn't have an idea of what you had for lunch until you had Instagram to show everyone was like, well, I'm in this fortunate position to be able to kind of be this conduit between 
the band and the audience that loves them and be able to show them like, yeah, well, they are those rock stars. They, they're like really funny, cool, regular people in a lot of ways. And, and so I kind of mm-hmm. went from being the person that you were talking about to being the person that's like going out of my way to make you comfortable. Sure. But again, that's called maturity. And yeah. when we met, we were both dopey kids that didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We just had a lot of ambition and a lot of guts and a lot of self-belief and a lot of people telling us that we couldn't do it. Yeah. A lot of people telling us that we were going to fail. So like, what do you expect those people to be like? So, and you know, that's been so the hardest good. part sometimes is like the people that I know the best can sometimes be the hardest people to interview. People ask me that all the time. Like who's really hard to interview? Meaning like the artists are difficult. I'm like, no, the hardest part for me to interview people is when I'm interviewing people that I know really well because I know shit that's secret. Mm. And it's and and then in my head, as you're putting together interviews and stuff, you're like, wait a minute, does everybody know that or am I just the only one that knows that? Yeah. And that can be really hard because it's like keeping secrets and asking good questions those can be on the same coin. Like you can still get to the point, but you, but not being a dick about it. Like sometimes that's hard. Sure. You know, but that's your, that's your hustle. That's your gig. That's your 20 (laughs) years of experience. (laughs) Can you talk to me about what else, like your company, the CEO, Edsel, and the things that you do that people would have no freaking idea what it is that you do, the movie stuff, the special effects stuff, because when I found out that you were doing all of that, I was like, fucking Edsel, of course he is. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm the COO owner of a company called Echo Studios, and um, we are the world's leading 3d 4d capture stage in arguably in the world um there's a handful of companies that can compete with the data that we deliver but those companies normally reserve their services for internal projects like sony or google or um you know epic uh, companies like that, um, but we're the only company that does what we do at the level that we do it that is just open for business. We're not owned by anybody else. Um, and what that means, uh, 3D and 4D scanning, is that we basically, uh, we we create, we, we capture the assets, which are the basic building blocks for the most realistic unmistakably realistic digital humans imaginable. So, um, and they're used for all different types of, of uh, applications. Um, and of course, as we go into the metaverse and into the future, it's just going to become more and more of this. But, um, you know, we most of our work is in video games, where if you like, if you play a video game and you go, wow, that looks just like Tom Brady, or that looks just like so-and-so, um, it's because it's a 3D model of that person. Um, but the truth of the matter is that unless it's a cinematic part of a video game, that's not actually occurring in gameplay, the engines and the capabilities of the, uh, the machines that are used to play video games can't handle the data. So that's why even though video games look great nowadays, they're still not photorealistic because they have to dumb them down still. Um, 
so the the real detail in what we do can more be seen in like major motion pictures when it's like a special effects scene and you know you take uh you know you take iron man or whoever the well iron man's a bad example because he's in a suit but you take you know some actual person brad pitt and he's fucking flying through the air or some crazy thing happens to him and and you can tell that's him but he's doing unhuman unimaginable things because it's not actually him it's a 3d model so is, is that like the ping pong ball suits that we see like that kind of stuff is that what you're talking about the ping pong ball suits are mocap which is the movement so um, look, you can look at what we do as creating the puppet. We create okay. the most photorealistic puppet with like poor level detail where you can see every wrinkle, everything imaginable. Um, but we don't make the puppet walk, talk, move, fly. That's a completely different business. Um, you had me and, at Muppets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, making the the puppet Muppet walk, talk, move, breathe, sing, all those things. I call that the space race, actually, because there's so many people that are trying to get to the to the moon, which is taking they want to be able to create digital versions of all of us and have them walking and talking and interacting in the metaverse. And some of those metaverses are going to be very stylized where they won't look like us. They'll look like, you know, South Park or like Simpsons, like they'll be cartoony purposefully. A lot of the reason for that is because it's easier to do that than to make something look like a one to one replication. But what's going to happen in the future is there they need as much high level, poor level data as possible from a company like mine that can capture the highest fidelity um, to put into basically to, to create databases where you can just, if we were to, to, to have a database with let's just say 10,000 people scanned at the highest possible fidelity in every ethnicity you can imagine, every weight, shape, color that you can imagine, what will eventually happen is somebody like Zuckerberg will create an app that you can take your cell phone and you can take 10 different pictures of yourself that it'll like direct you to do. And then you'll import those into some app. And then it'll then go into that 10,000 person database that I just described to you of high level geometry and poor level detail, the highest fidelity, and it'll fill in all the gaps. And then all of a sudden it'll return you in a quick instant amount of time with the 3D model of yourself that you created by only taking a handful of images with your iPhone, but looks incredibly hyper-realistic because they pull all the data from all the like-minded facial structures of all those 10,000 high-level geometry models that I'm discussing. Um, that's not happening yet, but that's the future and that's the space race that they're all trying to win. I'm not interested in the space race. I'm not interested in getting to Mars. I just want to make the rocket fuel that they all need to get to Mars because that helps my business be completely and totally focused on one thing. We're the best at what we do and we do something that a lot of people need. Um, so let them use our data for whatever they want to use it for. I just gave you one example. Of course, there's movies and video games and all kinds of other places, um, but uh, but it's a crazy time and and it's only going to get crazier. 
Um, I'm super grateful for my team and for my business partner, who's an incredibly talented guy. He's he's like the brains of the tech side of our business, which is really um, 3D scanning is kind of a digital art form, really, because it's a combination of technology and art because um there are little things that you have to smooth out and things you have to do to like to perfect it um but what i've done and what my role at the company is 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 in addition to being a good marketing head um my job is to or the job that i have taken on is to allow my business partner to sort of be the artist in the way that i always wish i could have found someone to do for me so he doesn't have to worry about any distraction. He doesn't have to worry about administrative. He doesn't have to worry about negotiating deals. He doesn't have to worry about paying the lease on the building. He doesn't have to worry about shit. He just comes to me and goes, hey, dude, do we have enough money for me to buy this? Because in order for me to go the next place I want to go, I need 50 of these. And they're, you know, 22 grand a piece. And I go, all right, well, I'll let you know in a couple of days. Let me come back to you and do the math and figure it out. But I, I, insulate him from all the bullshit that nobody wants to deal with, which is incredibly important part of running a successful business. Nothing um, kills creativity like budgets. hundred, hundred percent. Um, and, and at the same time, um, you know, he really has a tremendous amount of faith and trust in me to help guide the direction that we go. Because again, we've been doing this together now for about eight years. And in those eight years, there've been so many times where we've sat down and been like, well, do we want to expand into this? Do we want to expand into that? And I seem to be the person that continues to like, keep us focused in one direction. And while we have expanded into offering a few different things that go along with being the best 3d scanning 4d scanning company in the world, um, as I mentioned in layman terms earlier, there are ways that we could get involved in making the puppet walk and talk, but I don't want to do any of that because it, that would mean that that less of our focus and less of our attention is focused on being the, the absolute best at what we do and moving the tech and the, and the technology forward in the field that we're already experts in. So until, until we were to either become acquired by another company or we were to decide to get funding to expand into something like that. And there was actually a real budget to bring on an entirely new division. Maybe I would entertain it at that point. But um, as long as we're a, a self-contained small business and we're spending our own money, I think it's within our best interest to just be very boutique and be the best at what we do. And I mean, it's bananas. Like today, Kylie Jenner is in our office. Like, I'm probably not supposed to say that, but like, that's how, that's what happens. I mean, it's Vin Diesel last month and it's Kylie Jenner and then it's, you know, the rock and it's, it's fucking, it's insane. It's, so wait, it's, is, if you're scanning the rock, is he nude? No. And what does he smell like? Because these are the tough <laughs> questions I need answers for. <laughs> I cannot tell you that. Um, I, <laughs> I, I do not know. But I will tell you that uh, when we scan them, and, and if you want to, you can go to echostudios.com. It's E-C-C-O studios.com. And if you scroll down, there's a, a video. It's actually us scanning Terry Crews, um, who's like The Rock. He's just an incredibly oh, well-together gentleman. Not only is he glorious to look at, but I have a theory about certain people. I think The Rock smells fantastic. Never met him, never been close enough, but he seems like the kind of guy that smells good. Terry Crews seems like the kind of guy that smells good. 
Terry Crews, I remember, uh, I don't remember what he smelled like. Um, that would be weird. But I do remember his energy just being fucking amazing. Like, because yeah. we spent a lot of time with Terry. He was in for like a full day. We did a bunch of R&D with him. Um, but super, super kind man. Uh, funny, joking all the time. But if you watch that little video clip, it'll give you a better idea of what we do. It's literally like two minutes long. Um, but when we're scanning full body, generally, um, the model will just be in underwear. So like boxer briefs. Um, but, but when we're scanning their head, then you're just wearing like an A shirt and it's just scanning their head. Um, but yeah, Terry was great. Um, I mean, we've scanned so many people and a lot of them we're not allowed to talk about because we sign R and D. I mean, we sign NDAs and, um, until the game is actually released or the movie is actually released. We can't talk about it. Um, we did Sylvester Stallone for whatever the new movie that he just put out was finally came out. Um, another really, really super nice guy. Like I haven't, I think it's also the, the, the environment to which we're inviting people into it just, you know, and when we built our company and we built our, our space, um that was another part of it was like making it a very interesting place for these people to come um and for them to walk through the door and just kind of immediately the way that they take in the space when they walk in it's like okay i'm somewhere pretty fucking cool and i'm looking at all this shit and this is like all right i've just teleported somewhere else um it's important it's like where we were talking about about the studio with me and wanting people 100%. to come in and be comfortable. You're going to get your 100%. best work that way. You get a better I, interview that way. I'll tell you a small story. We we used to um, we used to have a really small location when we first got started, and it it looked very um, like we presented it the best we could. But it was we were subleasing space from another studio, and um, and I remember Sylvester Stallone, for, for example, he came in, and this was probably three years ago, maybe longer. And super nice guy hung out for like probably an hour longer than he even had to and just asked questions. And we were talking about um, potentially scanning him and de-aging him so that you could go back and do a prequel of Rambo and he could still play Rambo because it would be him. Um, and a great conversation, shook my hand, left, left the office. And the first thing I did, because I'm a fucking nut, I looked at my business partner and I go, you know what he's thinking right now? And he goes, what? I go, he's walking out to his car and he's thinking, I hope those guys make it because that's where we are right now. I go, when we get our new spot and we move into the 10,000 square foot building that we want, we're going to fucking make that place so awesome that when Stallone walks in and has an experience and leaves, he's not going to question whether we made it. He's going to be going, oh, yeah, those guys made it. And that's what we did when we moved into this place. And Terry Crews was one of the first guys that came in and did a bunch of R&D with it. And, it. and it reaffirmed everything that I I wanted, which was that he walked in and was unquestionably impressed by the the, the presentation of the experience. Um, and that's a big that's a big, big part of it, especially when you're dealing with these AAA celebrities like you have to make them feel comfortable and you have to make them not feel like you're Googling over them, you know, and like, which is, which a lot of people can't do. A lot of people can't resist doing that. Paul McCartney in there. And like, you can't resist getting a selfie with Paul McCartney, but like I didn't. 
In fact, I freaked everybody out because Paul walks in the room and he's got this entourage with him and he shakes everybody's hand. This is Paul fucking McCartney. Yeah, Paul McCartney. And everybody go and and somebody goes like somebody said something and 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 I and I was like, but if only the guy could write a song, straight faced. <laughs> And dude, when I tell you, like the room was like silent and then Paul laughed and I was like, yeah, like he got it. Everybody treats him like a beetle. Yeah. Best songwriter on the planet. I just made a fucking joke. So like, and again, that again, reaffirmed to me that like, I know how to handle these people and like, it's, they don't want to be like coddled they don't want to be googled over they just they want they want to be in an environment that they know is safe and that there's not a bunch of people trying to take selfies with them and go on instagram and post but they also want to feel like a person and they want they you know in the right settings they want to laugh and they want to feel like they're amongst people that get it not amongst people that like feel so blessed to be in their presence and like, they're, they're going to do work. a good job yeah yeah they're there to work like they're there to create something and they have to trust in you that they that you're not wasting their time and part of that is just your personality not making them feel like you feel like you're out of like you're a fish out of water because Paul McCartney's here it's like no dude this is what we do every day like nice to meet you sir paul go over there do this and then get into this rig over here and we're going to tell you what to do. In your boxer right? briefs, Mr. McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was cool. Paul, Paul was a really nice guy. Like we've had a lot of them, man, a lot of really big time people that I, I, I never would have thought I would have worked with and just working with them in a very different way. But it's gratifying to me on a number of levels and it's a much more ethical business in the music business. I don't have to chase people around for my money. Um, it's great. You send really big invoices to these companies and they pay them like they're supposed to, like, they don't argue with you. They don't try to chip you down. Like, it's like, it's a real growth industry <laughs> as opposed to, you know, the music business where I can't tell you how many times I've done a job for an agreed amount of money. And then by the time I get paid, it's the cry poor mouth and this and that. And I got a third of what I was supposed to get. And I did the job at a hundred percent. Why did I only get 33% of the money? You know what it is? I'll tell you what it is because I've dealt with that too, is that what you and I both do on the music business side of things is not tangible. And True. so if I get hired to host an event, sure, what I did while I was there doesn't exist when I leave. But there's also this, this certain, this certain, it's built into the business that we're in. There's this idea that there's an experiential reward for us. Yeah. And, they, and people don't that. Yeah. People, it's like, and, 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 and for both of us early in our career, that shit works. Oh yeah. You tell me, Hey, I'm going to put you on stage in front of 3,500 people. You're right. going to play with a huge do? crowd. What do I got to do? Yep. I don't care how much money I'm making. I just want to play in front of that audience. But once you've had those experiences, then you start to go like, Oh, I belong here. And it doesn't mean I have an ego. It just means I know my worth. It's like, I belong here. I do do the job that I was hired to do. And But why is it that my money always comes up short? Well, because it's the music business and it's expected to be that way. And that's why it's set up so early on to like, you know, give artists drugs and girls and, and, and keep them happy so they don't pay attention to the books. How many times have artists had their managers and agents and record companies take all their money people that 
all you, the time. You would have thought would have been gazillionaires. And then they turn yeah. around and they're like, wait, where's all my money? Yeah. Mike Tyson. <laughs> like it's insanity. Yeah. So, yeah, man. I mean, so I, I really am, am grateful to to have something that I have built outside of the music business. It's just more ethical and and also doesn't burn me out in the same way as the music business does because it's a different type of energy. Um, and this isn't my first uh this isn't my first dip into the non-music side of things for back in like 2008 or 2009, I took a break from touring for a few years and I, I went to work for a global marketing agency, which started out as like a sort of a music supervisor gig for a publishing company that was doing music for the NFL and major league baseball and all these major brands. But then once they sort of got to know me, they were like, this dude's got a really interesting take on, on everything. So let's just start throwing him into meetings, marketing meetings for Indian motorcycle or for Nissan or for whatever it was. And I spent about three years doing that and I was really successful at it. I made good money. I had a lot of good relationships, but it became very clear to me that I've, you know, being the junkie for ambition that I am, that if I wanted to climb that ladder and I wanted to really succeed at that business, I, I, the way I put it to myself was I was going to have to become one of them. And I was going to have to become like a marketing guy, which really is like the modern day version of Mad Men. <laughs> and I was like, dude, that sounds like buying a tombstone. Like that yeah. sounds like this is my life. And I'm going to like, I'm going to buy a piece of property close to the office. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to go to this office every day for the next 20 years. And I'm just too much of an entrepreneur. Like it just felt like, Maybe I'd have a good salary and maybe I'd be happy for a little while, but eventually like I'm going to start feeling like they own me because I have no freedom to like, just go like, Hey, but I want to do this. You're a shark. I, Sharks dude, die when they stop swimming. I know. And like, I remember that specifically. I, I, I was, uh, when I was working for that company, I had to go out to Sturgis and I was running a promotion for Indian motorcycle. And, uh, that dude, uh, Mike Rowe from uh, from that uh the deadliest uh, catch and dirty no jobs. no 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 not micro i'm sorry uh, we did something else with him I, what's the guy's name from the uh, american picker show oh yeah yeah hold on i'll anyway yeah. that dude he was like the thing there so i i was in charge of of all the production around this thing and i and i needed to have something hung and i was like all right, what's that going to cost me? It's like, well, you got to have a guy come out with the crane and the bucket and it's, you know, it's going to end up being like 1500 bucks and got to get, and I'm going like, and I'm calling and like, Oh, well, you got to get that approved. And I was like, Hey dude, you, yeah. Can I give you fucking a hundred bucks to climb up that fucking pole and wrap that thing around it and hook this thing. And, and that'll be enough. And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. And he went up there and I gave him a hundred bucks cash and I wrote it down. And I like, and I almost got fired for this, like not almost got fired, but I got chewed out for it. It was like you, you, that first off, you're never going to get your hundred dollars back because we can't pay. You don't you have a receipt. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, I'm like, I don't even care about the fucking hundred dollars. I just wanted to get the job done. And that was like one of my first experiences with like, with like bureaucracy and like the corporate red tape you have to go through to accomplish anything. And I was like, I can't succeed under these types of like when I can solve it for a hundred dollars right now, but you're going to make me wait two days and it's going to cost me 1500. That doesn't work. I can't, I can't roll with you. Like we're not good. 
So, um, so that was a great experience for me. And it gave me an opportunity to, to like stop touring for a while and work on myself. It was when I was kind of going through a, a, a real self-aware time frame in my life where I was, uh, I was getting over what I like to call Peter Pan syndrome, which most guys in bands go through. But a lot of them, even to this day, I know lots of Peter Pans that are my age. But for me, it wasn't working. And and it was uh, I just came to realize that, like, the guy that was on stage, the 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 testosterone filled, you know, ego driven, like, get your fucking middle fingers in the air like that guy. That guy's really good at his job on stage and he's a really good entertainer. But when you bring that guy home and you like try to have human relationships, but that's your mentality, like it's not really healthy. So I had to kind of break myself all the way down to like, who was I before I got a record deal? Who was I before my ego became part of my currency? Who was I before I was on a tour bus for nine months out of the year and there was nobody that could kick me off that bus, but I could kick anybody off that bus anytime I wanted because it was mine. I like, I wasn't one of those people that was surrounded by yes men because that's just not the, the way I roll, but I was surrounded by people that worked for me, which meant that there was no way to check me. Because if you tried to check me and I didn't agree with you, then you could just leave. It was my world. And if you don't like it, you can leave. I can't tell you how many times I said that to people. If you don't like it, leave. Um, but that's not a good way to have healthy relationships in life. It's not a good way to have good business relationships. It's I was just not say, a good it's way not to a good, It's not a good way to succeed when nobody's going. Anywhere. But. Right. 100%. So I had to break myself all the way down. And, and the way that I like to, exp to, to put it in perspective was like when I looked in the mirror, being successful and, and these kind of things, which I was, would make my mother proud. And that was important to me. But there were also a lot of things about the way I carried myself that I knew my mother would not be proud of. And those were the things I wanted to fix because there's no part of me that like, and now it, like, I feel like, sure, I still have things to improve on and grow, but like those immature ego driven parts of my personality, I stamped them out, but, but I had to kind of like, I had to backtrack and take myself back down to then like, you know, figure it out. Um, but that's the Peter Pan syndrome that so many guys and bands go through. And it's because it's encouraged and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's show just, business. There's, exactly. there's a show to the business, but, but for, but in our world for, for young men, especially it really does encourage immature behavior on all levels and it rewards it on oh, all 100%. levels. That's why guys like Tommy Lee, when I say this with all due respect, or a guy like Sebastian Bach, like I, I haven't met or seen Sebastian in years, but the last time I did, I got nothing but good things to say about the guy, but I will also tell you that like, he's Peter Pan. Like he's still like, you know, you, you talk to Sebastian, you go like, yeah, this is definitely a guy that at like 21 years old was the most beautiful guy in the world and got anything he wanted. And like, there's a disconnect of, of, of growing into a man. And, you know, he's got kids now and he's, you know, 50 years old. Maybe he's, he's gone through that and he's like an awesome adult man. I don't know. Um, but 
there's there's definitely it's definitely hard for for us to come to the determination that you even need to do it. But for me, it was something I needed to do because I wanted to be surrounded by other adults and I wanted to be surrounded by other adults that respected me as an adult and that didn't. um, And in order for me to do that, I had to change what I valued and I had to change like, you know, what what made me tick. And so being at that marketing company allowed me to unplug from touring for a few years and like reset what it's like to be a normal person. Um, and now I'm great. Like I can, I can still have that commanding presence on stage, but I leave it there. It's like, I mean, you can even think back to when we would talk 15 years ago, like I, I wouldn't be this, this, uh, transparent. I wouldn't be this, uh, what's the word vulnerable even like, yeah, I have nothing to hide. Like it doesn't, because I'm not trying to perpetuate some kind of front. But there was a character in the early days that I thought I had to play and I always had to be on. And I would would talk about certain subject matters and I would I would emphasize certain things that the character would 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 be more interested in. And, you know, you could list that as sex, drugs and rock and roll, whatever you want to do to to put it together. But I lived that. And it was anytime there was a camera in front of me or a microphone in front of me, that's what you were getting do that for long enough. Well, that's what you think is the only thing people want from you. hundred percent. And that was wrong. Yeah. But, but worse, worse than that though, is that you do that long enough and then it become it for me, at least it became what I like that part of my personality that was in many ways an act, which is not the right word. Cause no. they were, it was real, but it was, it was a part of my personality on steroids, but, but, at one time, it was a very small piece of me. It became the majority of me. And and it, again, even in normal life, like I would, the microphone would turn off and the camera would turn off and the lights would go down. But that was still coming out of my mouth. That was still well, you don't what be perpetuating. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is how I felt because I went through the same thing, right? Where one minute, you know, you're just this. I was a truck driving roadie and the next minute I'm this voice coming out of your radio at night is that I felt like, how can I say it? Like I, I felt like that's what, that's what you wanted. And I had to give it to you because if that's what that person does, Sure. And I don't give it to you, then someone else will. Sure. Like for me, when I was but young, I took it, but I took it home with me too, is my point. Right. Yeah. And and that was where it like I, that was what made me realize that like, dude, you're fucking lost. Like this, like you're not even in reality anymore. Like, and that's a sad day to like to to look in the mirror and go, like, wow, I'm I'm I think I'm I think I'm hot shit. Like, dude, you're just some dumbass in a fucking band. <laughs> like, some people cheer for you when you walk on stage. Like, you actually have bought in to some degree that that makes you special. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't. And anybody that thinks it does, they haven't failed. Like, I've failed enough in my life to know the difference between what matters and what doesn't matter. And as much as I love my fans and I appreciate their support of my music and my art over the last 25 years, what they think of me doesn't matter. Well, it's the same way with anybody's job. And I had to learn this the hard way in the last few years. 
I didn't know if I existed without the WAF call letters after my name. Right. That's terrifying. And then one day you wake up and they're not there anymore. And you're like, do I even matter? Am I even a person? Do I even, should I even bother getting out of bed? Because I don't even know if I exist anymore because that became my whole identity. And there was even like red flags for me along the way, because I remember distinctly being in marketing meetings with people that all of a sudden wanted to start glossing over how long I had been on the radio because it told people how old I was. Mm. And there's a little bit of a difference between men and women in this business that the guys are allowed to be old. Yeah. And they'll use it to their advantage because it shows I've been on the air 20 years. I'm experienced. I got credibility. And if you say that, it's like, oh, they, they know she's older now. Right. Like, that's not cool. And when I started having people asking me about my age and asking me to reword things and take specific things off of social media about like when I went to high school and like, like all of that kind of stuff, I was like, wait a minute, like, I'm not going to be allowed to get old. And yeah, I can't, and I can't not get old. Like. You know, maybe in five years, Edsel, you can 4D print me and scan me. <laughs> I'm and, not a printer, and, but no, I but get it. To like scan and make me never get old. Sure. We can do that in the metaverse. <laughs> but like you all of a sudden start going like, wow, is this going to be okay? Like, am I going to be allowed to have a career anymore? Yeah, that's scary shit. And like the last few years. I've been lucky enough to be given that answer that, yeah, it's, it's okay. Because, because you, you've learned what I've learned, which is that your audience is growing too. And your audience wants to relate to the growth that you've had. If you, that's why I can't write the same music that I wrote 20 years ago, not just for myself, but like, I don't feel like my fans are in the same place that they were then either. Like they want to feel the progression for you. They want to hear about your life and your stories and like the fact that you are a stepmom and that you do have other depth to your life because they can relate to that. Well, and people like you and I can sit down and talk about the journey we've both been on and how it's been the same in a lot of ways and different a lot of ways. And you can't have that conversation if you can't even talk about how fucking old you are. Sure. Yeah. hundred percent. It's just, it's insane that, you know, in some ways those conversations still exist. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, you know, I think, but I think it will be less, less relevant. And as you're going through this, this reinvention process that you're going through of, of instead of being the voice for someone else's channel, being the voice for your own channel, all that stuff is, is defined with a lot less of a microscope because you're just being yourself and you're just connecting with the people that have connected with you through time. Yeah. And I think that's super encouraging. Um, for me, it was the, the growth in me just, I just was, I hate, I hate to use the word, but I was just embarrassed of a lot of my behavior and just like looking back and going like, dude, you're like, it's one thing if you're a 24 year old kid, because I think I was a 24 year old kid and that's okay. You got the keys to the castle, man. Right. Anybody's going to run around and jump on the bed. Come on. That's what I'm saying. And, and when you, and when you, again, you're in, you're in rock and roll. So a 24 year old kid 
that's where I was. But eventually I was a 30 year old man, a 35 year old man, but still walking around and behaving with the same sort of value system and the same sort of mentality of that 24 year old kid. That's when it gets embarrassing. That's when, when you look back at it and, and again, that's like, I don't really have any regrets because I've, I've learned and grown through all my experiences, but the only regret that I, I guess I have was that I didn't, I didn't come to that realization sooner because I would have treated some people in my life better, which again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Bygones be bygones. You, you know, I've taken accountability, so it is what it is. But, um, but that's the, like, that's what I mean by looking back and just being embarrassed by your own behavior and going, man, I'm so glad I don't act like that anymore because I know guys that are my age that still do. Yeah. And I just kind of go like, all right, cool, dude. Glad that works for you. But like, that's like, I did that shit when I was, fucking hate to say it 30 but i did <laughs> i was still acting like a fucking idiot at 30 but you know um does, but all yeah, this, so- does all this time that's gone by now now that you're getting ready to release a new record and you're able to go back out on the road again does it make you appreciate the longevity of career and the journey that you've been able to go on from that 24 year old kid to now like that now you can do it with the clarity of the brain and the amends and the the experience and all of the things that you know now. It's got to be different in some ways to be able to like go out on the road and play with the band and just have fun too. Yeah, I mean, if my wife liked touring, then I would say yes, because that's the like that's the the trade off now is that like. I don't want to do any of the things that I did when I was younger on tour. I don't want to drink. I don't want to party. I don't want to like, I don't want to do any of that. I want to go like, Ooh, I'm in Cleveland today or whatever. Like I hear there's an amazing zoo here or there's this cool museum. And I want to take and the like, kids sure, and my wife. I can go do those things myself. But like if my wife and my kid were with me, it'd be like that. So, so truthfully, I'm looking forward, like in a perfect world for me, like if you really want to know like where I want the trajectory of my life to be, I want to make tens of millions of dollars in the tech world. And I want to not care about the bottom line of my touring finances. Because what that would do for me, because what I've always, what I like to to say about touring for me, even to this day, because I don't have tens of millions of dollars, I'm doing better than I've ever done. But still, when I look at a touring budget, I'm willing to suffer a lot to come home with more profit from touring, which means like, all right, how many people are we going to put on one bus? How, who, how many hotel rooms are we getting each day? How many days off do we have between shows? It's the eating I'm the perfect. ramen noodles for dinner so that you can retile the bathroom. Right. I, but so for me, I'm generally the guy that because, well, if I got to be gone from the things I care about anyway, then let's make as much money as we possibly can in that amount of time. And that's that's all she wrote. So I sacrifice my own personal comfort and the comfort of the crew and the band we play 10 shows in a row. Like I'm pretty relentless when it comes to that. And and that's part of how I've been my whole career. But in a perfect world, a few years from now, 
I will have enough financial security from my other business ventures to where we'll say, all right, there's a three-week European tour. And I'll go, okay, I don't care that I'm going to come home with no money personally. I'll still pay everybody else in the band what they're supposed to get, but I'm going to get my own hotel room every fucking day. I'm going to have a day off here and two days off here, and I'm going to bring my wife and I'm going to bring my kid, and I'm going to enjoy traveling the world because I have a reason to do it. And I'm going to get up on stage and play these shows and my kid and my wife can have those experiences too, but it's more about the other 23 hours a day. Like right now it's all about that one hour a day. And then the other 23 hours are just a formality of how we get to the next show. And we want to do it for as cheap as we can. That's what I look forward to. So as of right now, I would say, of course, I'm proud of the fact that I've had a career. I'm proud of the fact that I can say, man, it really is because it's 25 years and seven albums and, and, uh, and I, it's a small business. Um, and I'm the manager of the band. And then also like I have, I have parlayed my success with dope to my ability to affect the business of static X now as well. And to manage that band and to be the creative director for that band and to have a really real stake in the finances of that band. Um, and cause and controversy not- in that band because Every time they go out on the road, when I put the picture up, they were like, how did he take a picture with you? He was on stage singing for Static X. He couldn't have been with you watching the band. Right. And and again, I will continue to say that Edsel Dope, the guy you see here, has no interest being the singer of Static X. None. The last thing that I would do is stand on stage with a guitar next to Tony Campos, Koichi Fukuda, and Ken Jay and play guitar and sing Static X songs has no appeal to me whatsoever. Um, Me standing in front, this face in front of a Static X backdrop makes no sense to me. Um, From a creative standpoint, from a managerial standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, also being a big fan of Static X, being friends with all those guys and loving those albums and going, okay, we're going to do something for the 20th anniversary of Static X and and we're going to make this album with all these you know, lost tapes of Wayne Static's voice and this big picture concept of what we were doing and then going, and at the end of the day, we're going to have to put it on stage. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, what we felt was best was as long as we never put another face to Static X, then we can allow Wayne to always be the face of Static X. So we're going to create an entity. We're going to create a a mass entity that is there to allow Static X to move forward and to represent Wayne. But for all intents and purposes, all intents and purposes, that character that we created is there to serve Static X. It's not there for me or for fucking Jonathan Davis or whoever else you think or want to be under the mask. Like it's not to serve the person under the mask or else there would be no mask and there would be a person standing in front of the Static X backdrop going, hey, look at me. Yeah, the so lead it's actually about of the static most, X is Wayne Static. Right. It, it's it's about the most selfless fucking act that one can do. But the intention behind it is not even that. It's it's not to be selfless. It's just to give Static X fans the most the most nostalgic and most authentic Static X experience possible in 2022, 2019, whatever it was when we did it, um, without Wayne here. And if if Wayne, if anybody that's bitching about it 
wants to go get Wayne and bring him to the show, I guarantee you that the guy with the mask on would take his guitar off and hand it to Wayne and be like, dude, I'm so happy you're fucking here. Right. Go kill it. But that's not happening. And anybody that's mad about it, it's like, dude, who are you mad at? Like, you're mad at Tony or Ken or Koichi. Like, they're here. They showed up. There's one person that did not show up. God rest his soul and with all due respect, but he didn't show up. And and none of us fucking threw him in a ditch. Like, the dude made some really fucking terrible decisions and chose a certain type of lifestyle over being a healthy, productive member of something that people loved and people missed and people wanted. And truthfully, my goal all along with getting into the Static X world started back in 2013, maybe. Um, I, I, when I moved to LA, one of my, in one of my intentions was I wanted to bring Wayne and Tony back together. Like I had so much history with those guys and I did a tour, like about a 12 date tour as soon as I got here. And the only reason I did the tour was because it was with Wayne. It was dope and, and Wayne static and Wayne static was out there playing all the static X material. That's what people wanted to hear. But the turnouts were, you know, not great. People had, and, you know, for in a lot of ways, sort of checked out of the Wayne Static experience because it was not functioning at a very high level at that point. It wasn't giving people their money's worth. There was it was a lot more of like this sort of Bonnie and Clyde road show that was just kind of going from one town to another to get high and party and move on to the next town. Um, and I didn't realize how how deep the drug addiction part was i knew there was a yoko ono thing happening which i felt like i could handle um but i went into that situation 100 percent with the goal of i can be the guy to bring them back together because i know that all wayne wants is to play in front of the biggest crowds and make money and all tony wants is to like the band to feel creditable and to also make money and being together gave them both a greater opportunity to do that. Um, and the big elephant in the room was the girl with no shirt on running around on stage, swinging a shovel over her head, wearing go-go boots. And it was like, what is that? Like that, that is, that's a mess. Um, but I didn't realize how far that went and where the, how far the drugs went and how, how much that separated Wayne from consciousness but the conversations that i had with wayne about this subject led me to believe that other than the drug addiction which i knew rehab would have had to have been part of it for him i know the interest was there i know he didn't have any super ill feelings towards tony like of course those guys were hurt because they couldn't get along and couldn't make it work but but wayne wasn't stupid like he knew he knew it was his wife like he was like, yeah, I'd love to play with Tony, but Tony and my wife don't get along. That's what he said to me. He didn't say me and Tony don't get along. He said, Tony and my wife don't get along. Um, and my thought was simple. I was like, well, I'll put dope and static X back on a tour together and I'll just put the static X guys on the dope bus and I'll just let Wayne and his wife ride on the crew bus and I'll just be the mediator and I'll manage it and I'll produce it. And like, I know this band is too cool and had too many fans like this will work if it's healthy and we just give them static X again. 
Um, and I really thought that was going to happen. And as I said, I had some really good talks with Wayne about it. Um, but unfortunately, um, he didn't live much longer. Like the last show that Wayne played in America was with dope. And at that show was the last time I talked to Wayne and, and was like, well, email me those songs when you get back from China and I'll start bringing them into pro tools and we'll start talking about, you know, how to, what the next steps are to start trying to get you and Tony in a room together. And he was like, bro, I love it. Great. Um, but yeah, we all know how that story ended. So, and you can't but, fault the members of the band and we're not even just talking about static X at this point, you know, the, there's always an uproar, whether it's Alice in Chains, people gave Dave Grohl shit for starting another band after Kurt Cobain died. Um, you know, Journey, Queen, the the big thing now is this Pantera tour that's getting ready to go out. And until people found out Charlie Benante and Zach were the ones that were going to get behind the kit and the guitar, people, including myself, were like, are you really going to try and be Pantera without the Abbott brothers? Sure. Like, it, It's a rough one, for sure. Yeah, but... But the the band members that are left behind, it's their band too. Like, and their fans. Yeah. So that's why to me, it was just about the experience of what Static X was, which is why like, I couldn't imagine as being one of the people in the room helping to put this thing together and speaking our thoughts out loud. The thing that I kept saying was, I can't imagine going to a 20th anniversary Wisconsin death trip experience and not be able to stand in the back of the room and the singer's hair is standing straight up. Like it, without that, I'm going to feel like it doesn't feel like static X. Like that, that was in many ways, Wayne was the band's mascot as much as he was the band's singer. And that was true in the artwork, like how, you know, all you had to do was see a picture of like a circular face and then like the, 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 the outline of hair standing straight up and everybody goes, oh, static X. So that was immediate. It was like, so I don't care who we're going to get to sing for this band. If he's, if you have a guy standing there with his hair standing straight up and you're showing his face, how fucking stupid is that going to be? Yeah. Now he's like, wearing a Wayne static costume. Like, like it just, we're trying to beat Wayne. I don't even know how to like, again, that's where, that's where the interpretation of it gets to be very interesting Yeah, because you could say the same thing about the path that ultimately was chosen. It's, it's all up to interpretation, but again, the, the, the thought process was the hair has got to be up and I'll take myself for example. If I was to be that guy standing on stage with my hair standing straight up and not wearing a mask with a static X backdrop behind me going like, yeah, I'm Edsel Dope and I just spiked my hair up and I'm playing guitar now and I'm singing for static X. That feels so disingenuous. It feels so wrong. It's like the only way that I could ever sing for static X would be to just go up there as myself because I'm Edsel and people know who I am. But that's not static X. That's static dope. I'm not interested in that. So that was where the, the creative conversations became. It became clear that whoever was going to sing for Static X, the hair had to go up and there had to be some sort of mask. And, and there were a lot of different ideas. There was like, well, maybe it can be like an LED X. Maybe it can like, who knows what it can be. And then ultimately it was like, 
I think it just needs to feel like a dude. Like, so you can stand back in the back of the room and the fucking strobe lights can go off and you can have two or three beers. And as long as it sounds great, you're almost going to fool yourself into believing that like you got in a time machine and you went back to fucking 1999. And like, that feels like static X that looks like static X. And I know Wayne's not here, but Holy fucking shit. What a great job of giving me a static X experience. Well, anybody that ever saw them back in the day, like the way that people were bouncing to those songs when that band was firing on all cylinder or cylinders. Oh my God. So much fun. Amazing. So and much remember, fun. you know, we played 200 plus shows with Static X on that first album together. Like every tour that went out, it was fucking Fear Factory, Static X, Dope. It was Seven Dust, Static X, Dope. It was Power Man 5000, Static X, Dope. And then it was just Static X and Dope around the country. So like there's no two fan bases from that time frame that really shared more. Or I, I wouldn't say there's no two fan base. I would say there's no other fan base that Static X shared more than dope. Yeah. So that was a lot of what gave me the confidence to feel like I would be an asset to helping them, not just from an infrastructure standpoint and from a business standpoint of how to put it together. Because also, let's not forget, Static X never was independent. Every album they ever put out was on either Warner Brothers or Reprise. That's unbelievable career. That's six albums on a major label before Wayne went solo. But every actual Static X album was a major label release. So that was another part of what I brought to the table was the independent mindset of being able to help those guys start their own label, have their own publishing to be able to like control it all themselves. Um, but again, the big obvious missing link was, well, how are you going to do Static X without Wayne Static? And everybody has their own opinion of what they would do, but they don't get to make the decisions we did. We chose the path that we chose. And I think in a lot of ways, people don't know what they want. They really don't. Well, like anybody I'll tell you what they want. They want Wayne. Right. And which, it's the one which, thing they so can't have. Yeah. Right. So, so do I as a fan. But so at the end of the day, it comes down to going, well, you know, you can say whatever you want, but, but. But anybody that that you would have this conversation with, which mainly would be here, would be, what would you prefer that the band does? No one's got a good a good idea. It's like, well, they should just not wear the mask and should guy should just be himself. It's like, okay, well, that wouldn't give you the static X experience. Maybe you want that. But the majority of people, the 15,000 people a night that were at Rob Zombie, who most of which have kind of tuned out from Static X throughout the years because the band just went away, they got Wisconsin Death Trip. They got a dude with his hair standing straight up with a flying V guitar singing them those Static X songs with the original founding members giving you Wisconsin Death Trip. And in my opinion, and I think my opinion is with the majority out there, people fucking loved it and they still love it. And all it did was remind them of what they missed. And the band goes out of their way to not act as if they're moving on. The, it, the, the static X goal is not to move on into the future and try to reinvent the sound and try to become modern. It's a nostalgia play all day long. It's about being a legacy act. It's about watching static X and going, I feel like it's 1999. And as long as the band takes the approach that they're taking and doesn't put a new face to the band, that's what they'll be able to do. And uh, anybody that doesn't agree with it, change the channel. I don't know what to tell you. Um, Pantera has a little bit of a 
of an upper hand because the guy with the microphone is still alive. Yeah. Um, but my, when I was told about it or asked about it, like, I'm still going to say what I said then, which is like, of course, Zach's a great choice. Of course they made a great choice for the drummer. Um, but I just want to go see it. Yeah. And it just has to be good and respectful. When I see it, if I feel like it's Pantera and I get to hear walk, you know, loud and I get to feel the bass drum in my chest and I see the band up there and the and I hear the people around me going, like if I get caught into a Pantera experience and for those moments, I don't want to say I forget that the brothers aren't there because that's not the intention, but that I'm not focused on it then that's a win that that means that, Oh, I got my Pantera back and I'm really grateful for that. And again, that's all the static X idea was. It was to, to be able to give people a chance to have the band back. And there, there's no easy way to do that. Well, it's incentive. And, uh, you know, Zach doesn't want to be dime bag. He's sure. not trying to be dime bag. He's trying to keep dime bags legacy alive. Sure. That is a completely well, different mindset altogether. Yes, but there's but but again, if in sorry if I'm if I'm misinterpreting uh, the conversation, but I'm going back and forth between Pantera and Static X. Yeah. The uh, the difference though is that Zach is arguably as big of an icon as Dime. Yeah. So that's so that's a very that's a very easy move to make you're taking someone we all miss a guitar god that we all miss and you're putting a guitar god in his place so if people think that wayne static is a god he's this guy who has invented this vocal style that he had and did all that well maybe if Corey taylor was fronting static x you wouldn't need a mask maybe maybe then it could just be like this different type of static x experiment experience but because you're getting an icon doing it for you it's I still don't think that would be as good yeah. because it, it doesn't feel it. Now it feels like, again, it feels like static Corey. Like I don't want static Corey. I want static X. I don't want to put focus on who that guy is singing. Um, So it's, it's a, it's, but that's why, again, I say Pantera has the leg up on doing something like this because the guy with the microphone is still with us. Yeah. Um, And there's other ways to do it. Like Alice in Chains has done it, but Alice in Chains doesn't do it in a nostalgic way. Alice in Chains does it in a way that says we're moving forward. Well, that's what Van Halen did. That's what ACDC did. They were like, look, we're changing, but we're moving forward. And arguably in some cases found bigger success that way. Sure. Which hundred percent. But that wasn't the goal for Static X. Right. Static X wasn't interested in that, and and I don't think ever will be. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's different ways to do it. I, I think that the one that I'm waiting for is Lincoln Park, because it's going to happen. You think? Oh yeah, it's gonna it has to happen. Even if it's just a tour, even if they do it with 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 multiple vocalist guests. I mean, I think they'd be better off just finding one person that can smash it and like. I told the same thing to, to Dino from Fear Factory. It's a little different though because because Burton is still alive. Yeah. And obviously Chester is not. But if you really wanted to do it, my my vision for something like Lincoln Park, find somebody, I don't care who they are, find someone that can do the job vocally. Put the band on an enormous stage. Put the singer in the middle of the stage, but not at the front of the stage. Put them halfway back. Like 
you know, if the stage is 20 feet depth, put him 10 feet back and put him in the dark and just let him do his job and let the band and the lights and the production and show Chester's face on the LED walls, but give people the audible experience of Lincoln Park with the visual experience of all those guys in Lincoln Park and put no emphasis at all on who's singing. Don't let that guy go out there and jump up on the monitors and go, put your fucking hands in the air. Like, (laughs) who the fuck are you to tell me to put my fucking hands in the air? You're not Chester. Shut the fuck up. But if you put that guy in the shadows and you just let him do his job, don't use a pre-recorded vocal track because nobody wants that. That's why a hologram won't work. But get a killer fucking singer to just stand in the dark and sing those fucking parts while the rest of the band does their job. I think people would fucking cry their eyes out having amazing fucking Lincoln Park experiences as long as the singer crushed it. Well, you look at the the Taylor Hawkins tribute and seeing all of these amazing drummers going up and and getting behind the kit and playing drums for the Foo Fighters. It was so strange to see Taylor not there. Sure. But to see people paying tribute to his legacy. The people that love the bands want to hear those songs and they want to be able to love the, and, and be there for the rest of the band members. Well, and like you said also earlier, the misfit toys, like people don't want to just experience it alone. Yeah. They want to go where other people are and have thousands of people singing along and hearing their voices cheering. Like that's what they miss. That that's why I knew the static X thing was right because it wasn't about, the band it was about the fans wanting to have their wisconsin death trip experience in a room with other fans loud and live like they fell in love with the band and that's why i give pantera a large benefit of the doubt because i think the same thing will happen but again they have a leg up because the guy with the microphone is still alive and you're putting iconic people in the spots that we're filling which is great and that's what foo fighters were able to do too it's a little bit more of a of a of a tricky subject when you're trying to do it with a singer. Yeah. Um, But that's why I feel like, again, like the best way to do it, in my opinion, is to put as little emphasis on the person that's singing as possible, which is very funny with the static X approach, because again, you had to turn a new singer into the mascot, (laughs) right? um, which is what Wayne was also. But you also, um, it's like paying no attention to the guy in the middle wearing the mask playing and singing and holding the whole fucking show down because if that guy sucked believe me the world would tell you that guy sucked yeah because enough people wanted to go out of their way to tell you how stupid the mask was or how how disrespectful this was or that but no one's going out of their way to tell you how it sucks no one's going out of their way to tell you like oh that guy can't play guitar or that guy can't sing hearing the songs again felt so good and it's like and the riff comes in, you're like, oh, my God, I love this song, too. Oh, my God, I love this song, too. Like, it's just such a, a great record. Fan, yeah, as a fan, yeah. you miss that stuff. Yeah, it's so good. So I, I agree. So, again, the, the I think the approach is to to try to put as little emphasis on the person that is replacing the person that is no longer with this as possible. I think that's the best way to do it. And Static X had a very hard challenge because as we we've established you had to not only replace the vocalist but you had to replace the mascot as well yeah um but uh but if i was lincoln park or i was involved on that creative team i would either do it with a celebrity 
you know, an icon that could do the job, or I would do it with somebody that just did a fantastic job and just keep them in the dark. And I don't think the fans will mind that that person's in the dark. In fact, I think they'll respect it. And maybe eventually they'll ask that person to come out of the shadows so that they can like see them and participate with them. But if you just put somebody up on that stage and you call a Lincoln park and they run around and like act like they own that stage, that's going to feel really awkward. Yeah. And I say the same thing. That's what I told Dino about Fear Factory, too. I was like, dude, you guys are so badass. It's just strobe lights. Like, put that dude in the back and just let the fucking band like you got Tony Campos and Dino like that. Like you you need more fucking star power on that stage. Like now, what are you going to put some person that no one knows and they're going to jump up on their monitor and go get your fucking hands in the air? People (laughs) are going to be like, well, I'll probably do it because it's Fear Factory. But like, I don't know, I would let that dude earn it. I would like go sit in the back and like let the strobe lights hit and just do your job. And I think it would, it will identify and connect with people in a more, again, legacy kind of way, which is what these bands are doing. Yeah. It's different for Pantera because Phil can walk out on stage and go, get your fucking hands in the air. And it's like, it's, and you know, Phil. he's going to do that about 10 times. Of course. I'm the king of metal. Get, <laughs> put a crown on me. It's like, of course he is. Like, and God bless him for it. You know, yeah. Um, but in those cases where the singer is the one that's not with us, that's that's a, it's a different it's a different animal. Um, and again, everybody's got their own ideas of what they would do. But I think most people don't think it through. They just go like, well, I would do this. It's like, all right, well, good thing I didn't listen to you. And you're waking up tomorrow and going to your job. And I'm the one that's actually got to live by these decisions and get up on right. that stage and sell it every night. Yeah. And, at the you know, at the same time, like I'm also the one who has to like, you know, put my arms around his fucking mother and father and, and sisters and brothers and 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 go like, you know, we're, our goal here is to make sure that people get there, get to continue to experience this band, but also to make sure that they never forget the recipe that put it all together. And that was four dudes. And the guy behind the mask is not one of those dudes and doesn't want to pretend to be one of those dudes. Um, and again, I, I, for the record, like I, the last thing I would ever be interested in doing is going up on stage and being like, Hey, here I am with a big static X drop backdrop behind me and going like, we're going to play you some static X songs now. Like I, it just does not sound like a static X experience that I would want as a fan. I would watch that and I would go, that's static dope. That's not static X. <laughs> and that's not, that's not interesting to me. So um, I'm, I'm glad that um, those guys had enough faith in me to like invite me into their world, to listen to my ideas and my thoughts. And it all started with making a record, you know, it all started with, you know, trying to, to give life to those, those, uh, those demos that we found of Wayne's and, and wanting to, to help those be fully realized. And me as a producer pro tools wizard that I am, I was the perfect guy for that job. But the more we got into it, we realized that like, it's not going to stop here. Yeah. Like there's no way that this isn't going to lead to the band touring. And it's like, well, we got to get creative. So I'm grateful for that. And it was really awesome for dope to be on those, that tour. And, you know, for me to walk out there on stage every night and, and talk to the crowd and, and witness it, you know, it yeah. was, uh, it's pretty cool. You could really see the love people have for Static X and for Wayne. I think they're really happy that it's back. 
Well, before I let you go, because you are a producer and a songwriter, I have to ask you this question because I've been looking forward to your answer. So I ask everybody that, that is a songwriter that comes on the show because I'm so envious of the craft and I can't do it myself. Give me an example of a song from any artist of any genre from a songwriter's perspective. It's about the craft, the construction of a song that's perfectly crafted. A song Ooh. that you that you covet because you wish you wrote it because it's it's perfectly put together and executed. But then you got to tell me why. What you pick Ooh. and why. So you can either put the songwriter hat on or the producer hat on or both, I guess. But I've been very curious about your answer. Oh. I know. It's a shit question, but that's what makes the answer so good. The I mean, and and it's it's going to be a very unpopular answer because it's and it's it's going to be more it's going to be producer songwriter all mixed into one, but more producer and more about just how it connects with people in the modern form. Um, and I'm not sure I can tell you a specific song, but I'll tell you an artist. And you could just listen to their hits and there would be three or four of them. Um, I would say Calvin Harris. Really? Yeah. Because the, because there's two there in, in, in that type of music, which I guess you would call dance music, but it's really just pop music. Um, there's two parts in those songs. There's the emotion part and there's the energy part. And it's a really weird turn that dance music did compared to rock music where the, the energy part of dance music is like, it's the break, it's the beat, it's the drop as you call it, but there's no vocals over the drops, but they're generally like the biggest parts of the songs. And they're also incredibly recognizable. Um, but they're, they're there for nothing more than for the energy. It's like the riff in a fucking, in a metal song. And then the emotion part is the vocal part. And in Calvin Harris's song, sometimes it's him that actually sings. Sometimes it's a female vocalist. Um, but that guy is just so good at crafting incredibly simple, emotional driven emotion parts with very simple, but, um, but um, relatable lyrics that at least for me, I can't listen to that guy shit and not feel something like I can't listen to um like I'm I, I it's sad right now because my brain has so has so much um I'm googling something I want to google uh Calvin Harris songs because I want to actually uh tell you the song title um can't believe I'm talking to Mistress Carrie about Calvin Harris songs. <laughs> That's what makes this a good question because you never know. So, so like, how deep is your love? Like, listen to that song again from that perspective. It's just like if you don't feel something when you listen to that, like, dude, you're just you're just not open to it. Like, you're just have decided that you don't listen to that kind of music. But, um. It depends. Like, I, like, I so just I just talked to Giovanni from Giovanni and the Hired Guns, and we were talking about Los Cumbia Kings. Yeah, dude. It doesn't. Like, it's a good just song music, is a good know? song. Yeah. 
And like that, I feel so close to you right now song, which is actually Calvin singing, which is really impressive. But like, he's just really great at creating these real simple vocal emotion parts that are, are just really fucking excellent. And then the drops are also great. So um, yeah, I, I like that. Uh, I like that it's, it's done with technology too. And I, for me to pick a perfect rock song, like, I don't know, there's just too many. I'd have to go down the rabbit hole, but um, yeah. Um, I also really like that song Bang Bang by David Guetta. It's really fucking cool. Been listening to a lot of pop one. music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's again, it's more dance music, but yeah. it's, it's dance music that became pop. Um, but, uh, generally not a huge David Guetta fan, but like that bang, bang song is like, do you know that one? Not really. No. Like Google that one too. It's like, you'll be surprised. You'll be like, this isn't what I, what I was expecting. Well, I put together a playlist for every episode of the podcast and all the music that we talked about, I put in the playlist so that if people haven't heard songs that we've talked about, they know they're in the playlist and they can go find them easy and it's nice. Always... We didn't talk about very much music, though. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did because we like, talked about all the bands that we that you yeah, toured true. with and all the metal stuff. And so, if somebody's listening to this that never heard Wisconsin Death Trip or never heard sure. Pantera Walk or never heard a Seven Dust record, we talked about them. They'll find we didn't talk about playlist. Seven Dust, but I wish we would have. Yes, we did. You just said that that it was. Oh, I mentioned that we were Seven on tour Dust, with Static X, and right, Dope. Right, right. Yeah. Right, right, right. So yes. I always put together a playlist of all of those Got artists it. so that if somebody hears something and goes, I've never even heard of that band, that it might turn them on to something that they never heard of before. So you're going to so you're going to make a playlist. that's going to have Fear Factory, Pantera, Static X, Calvin Harris and David Guetta. Yes, I am. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I'm totally into that. That is great. But yeah, it's, it's, check out like again, I it's, it's not it's 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 not rock by any stretch but very well done those those calvin harris that's and, why and, it's a craft songwriting question yeah it's very well done now if you had to just ask me like who's my favorite artist of all time i would tell you prince like undoubted interesting no no argument like Mine's the beatles it's it's like you've got your you've got fair your enough favorite, that, you that's know? an awesome one too like dude Prince's Super Bowl halftime performance oh. when he played the Foo Fighters. Like, oh. oh, my God. Yeah. And the dude just plays guitar like nobody's fucking business. And he sings his ass off like that dude is just like, man. I can't remember who told me the story, but I got to tell you the story quick. And then I have to go because I have to get back on the air because one of us has a day job. Fair enough. Both of us do. Somebody on the podcast, and I got to figure out who it was because I brought it up multiple times and I want to be able to cite them said that we were talking about listening to the music that you record in your studios and going out and listening to it in the car, the way that the fans are going to hear it. Yeah. And that Prince used to do that. And he would leave Paisley Park and go out to the car and listen to it on CD. And if Do he, it all the time. And if he didn't like it, he threw the CDs in the lake. And all nice. those unheard Prince songs are on the bottom of that lake right now. Somebody should go get them. <sighs> If that doesn't incentivize you to get us to get a scuba diving license. No shit. Can you imagine what's on the bottom of that lake? I I can. And (laughs) I'm surprised that if that story is public knowledge, I'm shocked that somebody hasn't done it already. 
Well, obviously, somebody hasn't been listening to the Mistress Carrie podcast. Apparently. Because all of the world's problems get solved here. Yeah, well, I mean, you could solve a lot of world problems with Prince and some marijuana, that's for sure. And the Beatles, too. Don't forget the Beatles. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. It was so well, good to catch up with you. You as well. Thank I very much appreciate it. Wasting uh, your afternoon your with me. It's all good, man. I, it's long overdue. I'm glad we got to do it. Um, hopefully you got some good stuff in there and um, we'll do it again sometime. Maybe next time, since now we've done this big catch up, next time we can do uh, something more uh, specific. Well, and, Not that I have an idea of what that would be. but And like, we can do it in person. Oh, that'd be great. Like, cause you're going back out on the road next year with the new record. Yeah, we'll be right? out in March. We'll we'll be there in like uh, February, March. That'd well, be great. There you go. Yeah, and and I don't know if I can come to you because my brother is uh, is in Boston. He always comes to my Boston shows. Him and his family. I but will we, come to you. Yeah, you come to me and we'll do it. We'll do it on site. Yeah, but that'd be cool. Might even be cool to to do it with my brother because you remember my brother used to be in my band. I know. And now my brother's like one of the, I'm not going to say one of the biggest because that's the wrong word, but my brother's an incredibly successful video game producer. Like my brother produced Guitar Hero and Call of Duty and like my brother's a bad motherfucker. So he's had a very interesting road. Like when we got dropped from the major label, my brother went peace and went to the video game business. I kept being a fucking rock and roll idiot for another 15 years before I got into the video game business. So I'll sit down with the dope brothers. I'm all about yeah. it. I think that would be really cool. Like 20 really years, fun. 25 years later, the Dope Brothers and Mr. Scary. That would be really cool. That would be very fun. Well, it's a date. I'll see you when All you right. get to town. Sounds good. Be uh, good. Thank right, you for honey. everything. Say hi to Boston for me or whatever you want. I call it Boston, even if it's not Boston. Dude, we're in 130 countries now. Every state right. in the United States and 130 countries around the world. So the podcast is growing every day. We're taking over well, the world. Well, keep it up, man. You got all my support. Anything I can do for you, I'm here. All right. I love you, honey. It was good to see you. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Good night. Bye-bye. The one and only Edsel Dope. The new song, No Regrets, and the video for it just got released. And the new album, Blood Money Part Zero, is due for release on February 24th of 2023. And if you want to see Dope out on the road with Static X, Fear Factory, Mushroom Head, and Black Raven, they're headed out on the road in 2023 with a date in Boston at Big Night Live on March 21st. Get the link to that show and so much more in the show notes of this episode. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist, filled with all of the music that we talked about in this interview. And there's a lot. You'll also find all of Edsel's social media links, the link to his company, Echo Studios, and you'll find all the links for the band Dope and the Mistress Carrie links as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is around five minutes long, and it gives you all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info and entertainment details, and it makes it really quick and painless so you can get on with your day and know exactly what's going on. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. 
A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now I gotta borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. All because of a fancy bike? Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with Form Assist. It actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 